Hello friends, I'm your host Chris Thrill, I'm a former Royal Marines Commando, I've adventured for better and sometimes worse across 80 countries on all seven continents. Welcome to the Bought the T-Shirt Podcast. Andy, how are you brother? <laughs> Hello Chris, uh, very pleasantly warm, thank you very much. Yes, in Ibiza. Yes, yes, my home. I don't like to say that, but I do, I do say it too often, unfortunately. Uh, I suppose it could be called showing off. Um, oh, I but I'm I not a party animal. You know, I've only ever been in one of these nightclubs once, and that was to blow up 5,000 balloons. Uh, I was working for 10 euros an hour then. <laughs> and you know what? They burst a lot. <laughs> yeah, they've certainly got some uh, thumping nightclubs over there, but from what I remember from my one trip to the island, they're, they're blooming expensive. Oh, yes. Yeah, you need money if you're going to come here for that kind of a holiday. Um, I, th I spoke to a young chap, what, nearly 20 years ago now, I think. Asked him what he felt he needed. He reckoned he needed about £1,000. I said, oh, well, hotels, flights. He said, no, no, that's on top. He said, just, just to go to the nightclubs. I think a bottle of water was costing about €20. Euros, and the entry fee last year was somewhere around about 60 I think. And whatever else people use, of course, which I have no knowledge about. But uh, that all costs money. Yeah. But if you want a party, it's a place to come. Um, but I've been here over 20 years, mate, and I've never had a party. I've just uh, used the, the sea and the hills and the country and things like that, which uh, are far more prevalent. Well, this is kind of why we're chatting, isn't it? And, and before we begin, let's just say a big thank you to Marty Stalker. Marty, my producer, who's put yeah. us in contact. Um, thank you, Marty. Yeah, thanks, Marty. And, and if Marty recommends I should do a podcast with someone then he's always right <laughs> and um proven wrong then. he very kindly gave me some 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 pointers and I don't I'm not normally big on introductions but it, it I think in this case I'll make an exception because you not only join the Royal Marines and achieve the accolade of King's Badgeman, which for people listening is the top um, recruit in training, which is something I'm going to come on and ask you about because I find that fascinating in itself. As somebody who was not a, king, a King's Badgeman, I wasn't a King's anything. <laughs> I wasn't a King's anything. Um, but then you went through officer training and you got the sword of honour, which is again that's the um that's the kind of commissioned uh, top top accolade um so yeah shall we shall we start there <laughs> well i had a great advantage uh, i was 22 when i joined the corps <clears throat> excuse me i'd been at sea for um nearly seven years i think uh you know so whereas most of my contemporaries had more or less come straight from school uh, or possibly one or two little jobs, you know, but much younger. So I think the age uh, element was, uh, you know, a very useful factor, to be honest. Um, and of course, when you go through the officer training, having been in the corner about four years, uh, that was a huge advantage too. It gave me a real, you know, boost, enabled me to sort of uh, not just, it's not a competition. I never saw it as a competition. I just thought it was a great opportunity to, to help uh, the new lads joining up. Um, you know, adapt as well. And that was that was encouraged. I wasn't the only what we call core commission officer in that particular batch, uh, young officer batch, uh, May 1980. 
uh, there were two others who'd uh, you know come through the ranks like me and and, the, and it was impressed on the three of us to sort of help the new lads get into the groove you know so show them how to switch on and iron and all the, the really sexy stuff like that so uh, so i think i had a big advantage there really yeah and so when you became an officer did did you go back you obviously went back through training because you got the sword and and the reason i'm saying this for people who are not aware is you can you can get a position called sd officer in the marines standard duties which is just a side step a side step into becoming an officer as opposed to what andy did which is do all of the hardest military training military basic training in the world then he went back and did did it all again on correct him saying that andy yeah yeah, uh, just put you right at one point there, Chris. Uh, SD officer stood for special duties, and uh, and the only people who were eligible to do that were were men who had been substantive sergeants for one year. Uh, the, the whole system's changed now, and they've opened up the uh, opportunities for SD officers as well. So they're much more in line with what I did, which is called the general list officer um, route. Uh, I was on a short service commission, which was eight years. Um, and they kept me going right up to the last board. So in my last year, I started to think, what am I going to do? But fortunately, they passed me and they gave me uh, an extension for the rest of my natural life, which at that point was, I think, the age 55. Um, so, <clears throat> yes, the training was the same. Uh, the first half of the training was pretty much similar to what recruits go through, you know, the, the, the commando stuff and, and all the basic training. The second half was where I found myself a bit more challenged, where it became academic. And having to learn, uh, you know, an, a considerable amount of information. It was a great, great—I uh, would say—a challenge. It was a great experience, and I look back on my career now, uh, twenty odd years, and I think that was probably the best year of all of that time, simply because of the great fun we had, um, the wonderful friends I made, and we were a unique batch. We were quite small. I forget the exact figure, but we were somewhere around about twenty-five when we joined up, which nowadays are much bigger than that. And so, you know, we didn't break down into small cliques. We were a very tight group and, and we still keep in touch. Uh, we have a, a reunion at the moment, I think it's about every year. But, um, and, and lastly, it's been on Zoom, which is brilliant because it, it means that not everybody can shout each other down. <laughs> uh, but uh, <clears throat> no, you make friendships for life, you know, and uh, although officers are fairly individual characters, you know, and not given to that kind of social cohesion in the same way as uh, the men do, uh, nonetheless, the friendships are real. You know, they last for life, mm. and uh, it was a defining period for me, to be honest. Um, I was very lucky because they sent me back to the unit I came from, which was very unusual. Uh, normally, if, you know, for obvious reasons, you know, if you've been a marine in say forty commando, you wouldn't expect to be a second lieutenant in forty commando. Um, however, I'd been a marine in four five commando, and, and I was sent back there. And the reason for that was because the unit was just about to deploy to Northern Ireland, um, and having come out top in the batch the uh, that unit had the the pick of what they considered to be the best officers available so i ended up back in that unit um it wasn't a problem the unit was fantastic you know not one single person took advantage of our old relationships in fact they, they were more uh welcoming to an officer than you would have thought so um there was a certain pride involved it was great mm. i'm just gonna say andy that we've got the flicker we for, for for our friends at home this is the second time we tried to to get the podcast on and and because of the location of andy on ibiza and it it could be atmospherics it could be air conditioning it could be a lot of things but we've got this flicker um so i think we're just going to 
push on through. Um, yeah. Sorry about that. It's definitely not air conditioning, mate. I've switched everything off. Yeah. The only air conditioning moment is, is provided by God and it's coming in through the window, but, um, which is why I'm perspiring gently. <laughs> yeah. So anybody, anyone who's watching this on YouTube, if you just blink mm. for the next hour. Or shall I try? You should. Is that helping? <laughs> you should be okay. Uh, um, <laughs> let's go back to the um, the King's Badgeman thing, right? Because it's a very <clears throat> honourable thing to get. But I seem to remember there used to be a bit of um, a kind of in-house debate, as it were, whether you should wear your King's Badge on your blues, which you... Oh, no, sorry, not on your blues. Um, on your actual daily rig like for example if you had your woolly pullover you could wear it sort of on your arm and um i remember a lot of people chose not to because they didn't want to appear that they were you know sort yeah of in, in the definition as laid down you know in the uh, defense council instructions um after the king had visited the fourth battalion at uh Rormley's deal in 1917 i think Ooh, that's caught me out, hasn't it? <laughs> um, it, was, it was decreed that you wore that in every uniform. However, during my time, it was only worn on the blues and the lovets. Uh, but, but people were perfectly entitled to wear it any, wherever they wanted. I do remember seeing some bloke wearing one once, and they're not that common. Um, the King's Badge is not awarded to the best recruit in every troop. It's only awarded to the best recruit in the troop who reaches a particular standard. Some troops don't have King's Badge. Um, I remember seeing a bloke and myself thinking at the time, well, that's a bit uh, showing off. Uh, and of course, I was wrong. Uh, he was perfectly entitled to do it. I think we've got past that point now. And I do believe, Chris, that people wear it on every uniform now. Yeah. Marines do have a bit of humbleness about them, though, don't they? Compared to the, well, I don't want to say the other armed forces, that sounds rude. But, you know, like we call our officer boss and there's a few kind of in-house things aren't there that we well the relationship between uh officers and men in the corps i think is i would call it unique either like you say that's possibly degrading to other organizations but um i think from my experience it is quite special to be honest the army is quite a bit more formal very much old-fashioned in, in that sense and, and to be honest when i you know started uh, my life as a yo there were very clear rules about what you could do and what you couldn't do socializing with your Marines. Um, you could have a drink with them, uh, one or two possibly, but you know, not, not much more than that. Um, I'm not saying that that's necessarily what actually happened, of course, but uh, the, the relationship was, was quite clear cut. Um, and it was based on the simple reality that at some point you might have to ask this guy to risk his life. Um, if you remember the section battle drills, if you were under effective enemy fire and you couldn't identify the fire, then one of the last options was to order somebody to stand up. And that's a pretty tiff, tough thing to do on a battlefield. Fortunately, I never actually had to do that, but um, that, that's where it comes from. So, you know, it made total sense. But having said that, you know, bootnecks are slightly cut above in some ways. And um, they, can, they can interpret and they know when things are important and, and when things aren't. And mm. so the ability to switch between formal and informal, it, it's not that difficult, to be honest. But it is a grey area and it's an area where if you're too informal, it will come back to bite you. You've got to be very careful about that. And I think young officers are, you know, can make that mistake easily. As you get more senior, of course, you know, it's less of an issue. The other thing I was thinking of is that we don't say Lance Corporal. If you're a one-stripe corporal in the Marines, you're called corporal, which is, and I, I was, so obviously I've benefited from that. Um, 
well, there's a change. See, I left in 96. A Lance Corporal was a Lance Corporal, or colloquially known as a Lance Jack, but uh, not as a yeah. Corporal. <laughs> known as a Lance Jack, but if someone called you by your, it's Corporal Thrall. It was never Lance Corporal, which was a, sort of an army oh. thing. Um, I had three Lance Corporals in my troop. All good lads. All went on to have great careers. But there was a difference between a Lance Corporal and a Corporal. I think the Corporals particularly would not have liked it. <laughs> uh, yeah, and um, for people... You know, our bootneck friends, listen, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that the Lance Corporal had the even the same rank. And obviously they'd not done a junior command course, which is a very important stage in your career. Yeah. It's just it was always Corporal Thrall. And I, I thought that was kind of nice in the Marines. Mm. Um, well, a lot has changed since I left, you know, so and it's progress, isn't it? It's, it's not got worse. It's just moved on and it's adapted like society, I suppose. But it's very different to what I, I remember. Andy, how is it then? Because I'm full of admiration for anyone who's got the, the wherewithal in them to join Limston. As I said, the toughest basic military training in the world. It just is for people listening. That's not me trying to, you know, sell us. Um, it's tough enough as it is. How, what is it inside you that has that spark for want of a better word, that that you're already leading from the front and you're showing promise and you're you're confident in what you do and and you know when the when the PTI says around that wall go, you're up, you know you you're just up there smashing it. Whereas people like myself, I was I was just happy to get a green berry if I was honest. Um, kind of a you know, I excelled at some things like the gym work just because I was good at it. But the rest of the stuff, I was sort of, say, middle of the pack. Well, somebody has to be at the middle, mate, and somebody has to be at the bottom. But, I mean, the defining thing for all of us, of course, is that greenberry. At, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter where you come in training. It's, it's pretty much irrelevant. It might help your career a little bit. I think you've got a certain amount of uh, seniority if you, you know, came out to the top. But to answer the question, um, I would say possibly three things and these aren't necessarily unique to the Royal Marines I would say a taste for adventure bearing in mind we're talking about young men with testosterone that that one single type of character um, I think a certain amount of self-confidence which I wasn't aware didn't exist in other people until I got to much older and started having more of a connection with the civilian world and start to realize a lot of people out there don't actually have that um, and in quite a few cases in my time, and maybe not so much relevant today, but again, I'm out of touch. Uh, the simple fact that a lot of blokes didn't have a family. They'd either come from, um, you know, uh, orphanages or, or, or abused backgrounds, and they were looking for something. They were looking for more than just the, the adventure, the, the fun in the sun with a gun sort of thing. Um, and I think those three, those three elements, um, which, which you could find in other organizations, um, are basic requirements. You know, you've got to be able to sort of um, face life, a very uncertain life, because again, to give a bit more perspective, when I joined up on the 5th of October, 1976, there was no uh, pre-training of any sort. Uh, I, I'm not sure what it's called today, but it was called the Potential Recruits Course during my time. And it, and it started in the sort of early eighties. Um, there was no pre-training whatsoever. You just arrived at Limson and got on with it. And uh, Yes, of course, it was a bit of a shock, 
But I think because of the upbringing I'd had, and this is probably true for all of us, you know, one way or another, I had a very privileged upbringing, but it had its own uh, challenges. An <laughs> um, English boarding school is not to be, uh, you know, confused with the gorbals, but, but by golly, it tests you. And I think those backgrounds, uh, you know, are what prepared us. And, and we didn't have um, the privileges that are natural parts of life today. So uh, likewise, the training reflected that. The training today is far more complex. It's got longer and harder. There's a hell of a lot more to absorb uh, academically. So, you know, when people talk about training was tougher in my day, it's not true. It was, it's always been tough and it's just changes with the times. But I think that's, that's what you could say that, you know, those are the basic raw qualities. Once you're actually in training, then that whole brotherhood bonding thing takes over and suddenly you're part of a troop. Uh, and even more um, relevant, you're part of a section. And you're living in a room with, say, five other blokes. I forget the exact capacity. I think it was eight. Um, you know, and you become very close uh, and, and you have the common enemy, which, of course, is the training team uh, applying the weapon, which is the training syllabus. And it doesn't matter whether it's in the gym or on the bottom field or crawling across the river X at low tide. It makes no difference. Wherever you are, um, you have that common threat, if you like. That's the wrong word to use. But you know what I mean? We're all pushing against something. And until you click and realize, go with it rather than fight it, you know, you, you don't quite get into the groove. Once you make that decision and some people make it quite early. I think I did. Um, then off you go and you just do your best basically and somehow you know six months later you're at the end I remember the best advice I had was you know, just take it one day at a time don't think about next week or next month just take it one day at a time and suddenly six months has gone by so uh, you know and I think that because it is or was and probably still is the longest basic military training anywhere you know it, it elevates you to that feeling of that status you think well yeah, actually I'm a cut above the rest but but the the humility side of life is a very important element too and that was emphasized, you know, don't go charging around with a green berry on it, showing off and bragging and all that sort of thing. You know, that's not what the rule means about. And, and humility is definitely a part of the character, I think. And that's one of the things that attracted me to it. And I think it's still the case today. Did you dig out, as we used to say, did you dig out for the, for the King's badge? Or, or was it just a, a byproduct of you being a good, a good recruit? Well, I can only speak for myself. Um, there was a King's Badge board, and this was about a week, I think, before the final pass out. And there were three candidates, of which I was one. And, and I cocked it up totally. The Sergeant Major briefed us uh, on what was going to happen. Um, my name was shouted out. The door was opened. I was ordered right turn, quick march, or recruit short tension, that sort of thing. Left wheel, and that was the last command. So I marched right past the King's Badge board in one of those big lecture rooms in the Puzzle Palace. I ended up marking time in front of a blank wall because nobody ordered me to halt. <laughs> the Sergeant Major, they all had a chuckle at my expense. And I don't know if that helped me or not, but um, I think the, you know, the slavish obedience to the last order was probably the thing that got me through. Um, but apart from that, up to that point, you know, it had not occurred to me. Um, and I wasn't informed about who was getting the King's badge until our troop commander, Lieutenant Bob Fletcher, who was a great troop commander, uh, still around, lives in the West Country today, I, I remember. Um, um, uh, yeah, was, I, I had the great privilege of working for him later on when I became an officer. But uh, you know, he informed me as we were marching onto the parade ground for the final parade, and that, that was so you know, half an hour before I was actually presented with the thing. Wow! And when you rock, rock up at your unit, then, and as you said, it's the same one that you served in as a marine. Um, how did the how did the lads? treat you i mean did they come up and call you sir or was is there some sort of unofficial 
like if I knew you before, you can call me mate or or or, or no, nothing like that at all. As I say, it was by maybe by today's standards, and again, I'm out of touch. Uh, it would seem very formal, but to me, it seemed quite natural, and to everybody else, uh, you know, I'd been a marine in the unit for uh, three years plus, and um, an officer is an officer, simple as that. And uh, I mean, majors were gods. We've we've all come down one click uh, around about the time I left the corps. They changed the rank structure a bit. But um, the colonel was just somebody, you know, you never saw. And, and the RSM was the person you feared most or his dog. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there, there was very clear cut lines. It wasn't difficult. So when I arrived back in 4-5, uh, it wasn't something I had to prepare for. It, it just felt very natural to me. And I had made that transition because I'd had a year of training. Everybody else accepted me for who I was. Not one single person called me boss or Andy or anything else. Everybody just carried on as normal, which is you salute, good morning, sir, whatever you got to do, you know. Um, if anybody was going to upset the apple cart, it was going to be me by being over friendly. And that was the thing I had to guard against because there were a lot of my former friends, particularly in recce troop, the unit, you know, the subunit I'd been in um, for the about over two thirds of my time in four or five. Uh, you know, and, and recce troop was full of real independent characters. And, and if you want to find an un Pusser's organization, that's the place to go to. I believe in 4 or 5, they got their own bar now, officially. <laughs> Says a lot about Recce Troop. But, um, you know, not one of those characters, not one of them. Uh, and, and that was a real, still gives me a bit of a, a thrill, I think. You know, it, it was a sign. I think people were very proud of the fact that one of their own had actually made it. That was a big thing. They wanted to show it. Yeah. And of course, it spurred me on, simple as that. I had to play the part. Well, it's a cracking effort in every every way, shape, and form. Well, thank you very much, and yeah, um, yeah it was a great achievement for for the core as well. You know, it gave me the opportunity because I was a year over the age limit. That's another long story. How I ended up as a firefighter in Portsmouth and all the rest of it, and and uh, didn't get the O levels required in time. But the core bent the rules and said, "Okay, sure, you can have another go." And uh, I was over age. I was twenty six when I went through YO training, uh, and the age limit was twenty six, and I was already over it. But they bent the rules for me. So, uh, you know, that shows you how flexible the core is. So where were you, Andy, when the Falklands kicked off? Uh, in that very unit, in 4-5. I mean, I had a, a boy's own tour, as a, a first tour as a troop commander. You, you, I've never heard of anybody having anything since remotely like it. Came out of training, joined 4-5, uh, that was preparing to go to Ireland, went straight down to Lidenhithe to do the training, deployed to Belfast, did that tour, came back six months later, went straight out to the jungle at the beginning of 1982, three months in Brunei, fantastic. And we were in Hong Kong on the way home when we heard the Argies invaded. And so <laughs> from a personal point of view, not a very good draft because it was, my wife was getting used to me sort of arriving, giving a kiss, dropping the kit, changing the kit, giving a kiss and leaving again. And that seemed to be the case. Um, but from a professional point of view, it couldn't have been any better. And uh, you know, they extended me in the job because there was somebody marking time, waiting to come in and take over from me when we were in Brunei. Uh, and from his point of view, regrettably, uh, they said, no, we're not changing any appointments at this stage. <laughs> That's silly, we're going to war. And so uh, I remained in post, which was brilliant. And you know, I had, I had a troop that was worked up. I mean, we couldn't have been better prepared. We were probably the most prepared in the entire UK orbit for that particular conflict, without a doubt and particularly our navigation. Um, you know, if you can navigate in the jungle, you can navigate anywhere. So uh, that was one of the greatest benefits we had from that, I think. How did you get from Honkers to the Falklands? 
Well, surprisingly, the RAF actually flew us to where we wanted to go, a place called RAF Lucas in Scotland. Otherwise, it would have been Bryce Norton and a three-day camel trek back to our broth. But um, they flew us directly to Lossy Mouth, um, into the coach, straight home. I forget exactly how long we were there, a very short period of time, literally just dropped the jungle kit, pick up the mountain Arctic warfare kit, about turn and gone again. Uh, and we overtook everybody. The, the rest of the brigade was at sea, moving south. Uh, we flew straight down to Ascension Island, and we were the first there. So um, very quick turnaround. Um, at which stage did it all become very real? Well, that would be the 1st of May, uh, south of Ascension Island. Up to that point, there'd been a lot of speculation. Of course, there was a great deal of political toing and froing. There was a guy called Al Haig working on behalf of Ronnie Reagan, the US president at the time, uh, and Mrs. Thatcher, the prime minister. Uh, trying to negotiate with uh, the Junta, the Argentinian Junta, uh, Gautieri was the main man, um, and getting nowhere. And so, you know, we, were, we weren't aware of much of this. We, our only news was, it was coming either from Blueys, the good old-fashioned air mail letter, um, of course, way beyond, you know, before internet and computers and mobiles and things, um, or the BBC World Service. That was, that was our only form of information, and it was pretty scant. So we were very much in two minds as to whether or not we'd actually have to go and land. But on the 1st of May, on our way south, we got the news that we'd sunk the uh, Argentine cruiser, the General Belgrano. And that was pretty much, okay, the gloves are off now, we're definitely going to war. And three days later, I think it was on the 4th of May, they sank the, or attacked rather, HMS Sheffield. And so from that point onwards, we knew the war was on. My gosh. And you, were you a lieutenant at this stage? Uh, just turned acting lieutenant, I think. See, in those days, um, again, just to give a bit of history here, um, and again, it's all changed because of bringing the officer ranks more into line with the army. We were aligned with the Royal Navy then. Uh, so I did two years as a second lieutenant, uh, a further two years as an acting lieutenant, then seven years as a substantive lieutenant. So in other words, you're a lieutenant for 11 years before you became a captain. Now I think you become a captain within a couple of years. And from Ascension Island, which ship took you south? We had the best one going. She it was the Royal Fleet Auxiliary Storeship Stromness. And uh, we were very lucky there. I mean, the guys on the Canberra probably thought they had it better, but I don't think they did. Um, the whole of the unit, minus Zulu Company, Zulu Company profed, so they think, <laughs> on the Canberra, uh, the, you know, the old uh, P&O uh, cruise ship. But we, we had this storeship, and she had everything from poppadoms to nuclear warheads on board. So we didn't lack for whatever we required. And, and they were a, a very, very friendly crew. Couldn't do enough for us. Captain Dickinson was the uh, skipper of the ship, uh, proper old seaman. Um, and it was a very happy ship, you know, and considering what we were doing and, and the limitations for the crew particularly because, I mean, the boots never stopped running. They, they never got a proper night's kip or when they were off watch, you know. There were always boots running around the decks. You've got the best part of 650 blokes trying to train on a ship. That's got to be properly coordinated. So the training went on 24 hours a day, basically. Uh, and yet, you know, there was not a single murmur. The, the, the chefs were all Chinese, I think, uh, and they produced some wonderful food. And of course, we just come from the Far East, so you know, we were, that's what we expected, and we got it in, in buckets. Uh, very happy ship. It, a point's just come to my mind, Andy, that if you're a skipper or troop commander or even any commanding officer, you're 
there's an enormous other, I don't want to call it pressure, but another factor here that you don't have if you're just a Marine on the ground, right? As in the skippers don't, you know, they don't want to lose their ship, do they? With Responsibility is what you're talking about, I think, Chris. Well, absolutely right, mate. That's what comes with the job, doesn't it? And that, that's true of any position of responsibility from Lance Corporal upwards. Um, if you want that responsibility, that's why you go for, you know, the, the training to, uh, to, to get the opportunity. When, when you finally get that weight on your shoulders, well, again, it depends on, I suppose, circumstances. Um, I'm jumping well ahead in the story here, but a contemporary of mine, who I won't name, but he knows who he is, and he's a good friend, who was supposed to be taking over from me, never got the chance to do it. And um, the day after the battle that we eventually took part in, in which my two contemporaries were both very seriously injured, in fact, during that time, we thought they were both killed, he suddenly found himself catapulted into one of those jobs. And then he got the order to attack a thing called Sapper Hill, which was the feature just outside Stanley. It was the very last uh, you know, hill to take, and it was more of a, a flattish sort of common than a proper hill. Um, having only just arrived literally in the unit that morning, not knowing anybody in the unit personally. But even worse than that was the fact that during his officer training, somehow or other, the training team hadn't got it right and he'd never actually conducted a troop attack. So the first one he was gonna do was for real. <laughs> Unbelievable, isn't it? Fortunately, on the way in through a minefield in broad daylight, all of us not looking forward to this, uh, the enemy surrendered. And so he never got to do his troop attack. Yeah, but, this, uh, this was Sapper Hill, right? That's right, but yeah. that's responsibility, mate. That's that's what we're talking about here. The weight of that suddenly, I can't even think of an example worse than that. And and that guy, his name's Nick, my friend Nick. He knows yeah. who he is. When he told me that story, I was flabbergasted. I thought, bloody hell, I didn't realise that, Nick. Yeah, I should just give a shout out here to a good friend of mine, Russ Berriman. Russ, I've got the shirt on, mate. Um, <laughs> so Russ. that's who Dirk is, right? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, shouldn't have said that. Should I? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's. It's fine, but lovely, lovely man gives me no end of support, brother Bootneck, and he was recruited towards the end of the conflict for, for what you've that mission that you've just said, and almost like as the choppers were going in, the the white white flag was flying over Stanley, I think. So um, so I told you. Yeah. <laughs> so let's let's go back to the beginning because this is just. Um, I mean, one of the things Russell said when we did our podcast was he didn't, being with 40, he never actually got to do a troop attack, um, which, which is, let's just say there was enough to talk about in the, in the what, what these guys did go and what they went through was just enough, not just for one podcast, probably about 10, if I was honest, <laughs> but, but you're the first person i've spoke to on air so to speak that actually did put in attacks on the mountains um can you tell us how it was going ashore at the start uh well d-day the 21st of may our big d-day uh yeah one of those uh memorable occasions um exactly as you'd expect i suppose but uh the thing that stands out in my mind, the, the, the two ends of the spectrum, if you like, on the humorous side, there was a, a guy in 4-5 called um, Blue Novak who went through training in the troop before me. Now, 
but to go back to training as you probably remember you know if you know anybody outside your own troop that's pretty rare because you're so focused on training you don't really see anybody else well he stood out so much that everybody going through Limson knew blue novak he, he was a genuinely unique character uh, and, a, and a core comedian par excellence and i've never come across anybody quite like him since um when we were at assault stations you can imagine what it was like the lights were red um very tense we were carrying everything we were going ashore with kit we'd never carried before uh, it's no exaggeration to say there was nobody carrying less than 100 pounds and in many cases much more than that the radio operators the mortarman machine gunners and so on and so forth in fact we went ashore with two bergens and uh, so there we were at assault stations in a ship that wasn't designed for it so the corridors were too narrow we were crammed in we were all sweating profusely waiting for a l hour as it's called when you go over the rail and start the landing and um there was a famous reporter called Michael Nicholson on board, and he was coming up through the, the ranks, as it were, with his tape recorder, and he spotted Novak. Now, Novak was six foot plus, with belts of ammunition around him, um, Bergen on his back, fighting order, SLR. Uh, we were carrying 66s, 81 millimeter mortars, uh, crikey, the lot, basically. Uh, but over all of this, in this red light, Novak had this enormous great bra, and it just shone out, this white thing, you know? about as untactical as you could possibly get and uh Nicholson had to stop and he said he was chuckling so I've got to ask you he said why are you wearing that he said I've heard they don't shoot women sir <laughs> <laughs> that, that was blue right well um an incident occurred I believe on the Norland I think a para had a negligent discharge and shot himself in the foot or something of that nature so the whole landing plan collapsed by the time the landing craft got alongside us it was already daylight so what had originally been worked out, scheduled, you know, so many companies and so many ships, that all went over the side and we just all piled in. It was a, it was a melee to get into this thing and get off as fast as possible. Uh, because we'd heard about the Exocet threat with uh, HMS Sheffield, of course. Uh, we couldn't wait to get off the ships, but it was broad daylight. The run-in was very, very tense. Um, when we heard the first helicopters, there were people saying, is it one of ours? And there were people starting to cock weapons until some sergeant major at the back screamed out, stand still and all this sort of thing. Uh, when the ramp finally went down, to our great relief, there was nobody there. And we just walked off and staggered off, to be more accurate. I mean, had that been an opposed landing, there's no question about it. It was just impossible to do. It wouldn't have happened. We'd have all been destroyed. Anyway, we staggered off onto what was called Red Beach at um, a place called Ajax Bay, which is where the old uh, meatpacking plant um, still stands, I think. And uh, this also became the brigade maintenance area. So all the kit was coming ashore here. Well, according to our orders, it was very straightforward. We just yomped up the hill, went into a defensive posture, got the kid off and started digging. But at some point uh, between the ramp and getting to those trenches or pot potential trenches up the hill behind the meatpacking plant, this red aircraft flew overhead. It was a jet and it just came out of nowhere and, and it was like a bat out of hell and nobody reacted. And uh, I think somebody shouted open fire after it had already gone. And there was that feeling of, we just missed our chance. But a, a red aircraft, that was even more bizarre. Um, it turned out to be an Air Mackey trainer that had been sent up from Stanley just to confirm reports that there was something going on over here. Of course, the pilot was unaware of the thousands of troops underneath him. He was using the hill for cover, looking at the ships out in the sound. So uh, <laughs> he had a lucky escape and we didn't get to fire a single shot. But when the next aircraft turned up, by God, did it take off. Every single weapon, including the adjutant who had a bloody six uh, six shot revolver were firing away at uh, this thing in the aircraft and and of course it was hugely dangerous to all of us there was stuff landing from the ships the, the chinese manning the pom-poms on the lsls 
uh, there was just guns going off and missiles and everything else. And uh, it felt like a carnival. It was just, you know, we were still in that peacetime mentality. We'd got off the ship, so a huge sense of relief. We'd got ashore without being fired at. And now we can shoot at these things in the sky. You know, it was, it was mayhem. <laughs> it was what four or five does very well. <laughs> but it wasn't a last. Just you talk about digging in there. Um, it, I think for people who weren't there, it must be impossible to comprehend just the physical, the, the physical nature of what you went through. I mean, it's cold down there. It's miserable. Every time you stop, you've got to dig a, you know, dig either a shell scrape or a trench. A trench is a whole thing in itself i mean that takes two days to, to to dig it's exhausting then you sit in it and you are cold miserable wet tired hungry fed up wishing you could just go and put a normal kettle on and make a normal cup of tea in front of a fire somewhere and that was just me in training <laughs> i mean well, of course, by the time we, you know, we were deployed, there were very few people who just literally come out of training. There was one guy um, who I believe was 17 who literally just come out of training. So, it, it, you know, <laughs> but training's training. I mean, by the time you get the end of training, you've forgotten about the kettle and mummy's nice kitchen and all that stuff. You know, you're perfectly capable of handling all this stuff. Uh, digging trenches is hard. My best experience was a week in 40 Commando trying to dig in the, uh, the command post, which we failed at on Dartmoor. Uh, because we found the bottom end of Mount Kilimanjaro, we couldn't blow that up. Um, but uh, and and SF trenches, you know, GPMG SF sustained fire. That, that took about four days on a place called Concrete Hill in Sennybridge. Um, but the young officers I trained in the nineties, they dug some fantastic trenches on uh, Salisbury Plain, proper trenches as per pamphlet forty-five, which took best part of a week. Uh, you certainly go without sleep for long periods of time. It is draining, absolutely right. But I mean. What fantastic training you know if you can get through that you can get through anything so uh, so i mean the, the, the trenches we dug up there were just like anywhere else hampered by rocks and wet of course you're constantly bailing out with a mess tin uh, it's much more comfortable to sleep out of it than it is inside uh, and you know the the stuff we were given the kip the kit individual protection which is a piece of plastic <laughs> to stop bombs coming through <laughs> you have to laugh at all this don't you um you know you get used to that but um it's not comfortable no definitely not um but, you know, your mind is focused on something else. The mundane aspects of life don't even register anymore. The, the yomping was a, a wake up, which, you know, you want to talk about that. I'll talk about yomping in a minute. But uh, living in a trench is um, it's just normal life, really. What felt bizarre was things like zeroing the weapons, not being on the range, not having a platoon weapon instructor telling you, you know, giving you orders and that sort of stuff. Literally just putting a compo tin on a rock 100 meters away and trying to shoot it. And then discovering some blokes having a dump around the back. I mean... <laughs> That was what was bizarre, uh, apart from the air show. I mean, the air show was the real event of that week. That whole week, we were there for a week in, in those trenches. And uh, I think that was part of the gradual change from peace to wartime mentality. Initially, seeing an aircraft hit by a, a missile of some sort was great cheer and excitement. Um, one of our gunners actually shot down a Mirage. It was, the gunner was protecting a rapier, which is a, a proper anti-aircraft weapon but the rapiers didn't handle the sea voyage very well and they couldn't calibrate them or something or the gyroscopes wouldn't work. And the poor old uh, rapier operator was very frustrated. His, his kit wouldn't engage, but the gunner with the GPMG shot down a Mirage. And, and uh, you know, that, that was 
without realizing you're 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 making that switch that transition some of us have been to northern ireland probably the bulk of the units actually um uh, but the contacts in northern ireland weren't anything like they've been recently in iraq and afghanistan nowhere near that level uh, so not everybody been in the contact so for a lot of people for the first time this was the actual first time you let them rip and uh, you know it's a great feeling it's what you've trained to do but gradually the sympathy element uh, and apologize for the dogs if you're hearing them i can just cut this at the moment and wait till they shut up um they're all right okay uh the the sympathy element goes um but you know there were a, there were other events along the route that were going to change that as we got further into it Mm -hmm. a, a week in, in defense was okay it was about the right length of time but when we got the orders to move i think we were all quite pleased until we tried to pick up the bergens that's when reality really sank in so andy by this stage has that, had anyone's feet started going down because of the water in the trench i i had uh, i think it was my second radio operator marine turney coming up to me in the morning and saying have you had any mail yet sir and, and me and my innocence said, no, 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 no mail turning. No, we don't expect any. And I said, um, have you foo fooed your feet? <laughs> and then I realized what he was doing. He was doing my job because that's what you're trained to do as a young officer. You go around and check the lad's feet, make sure they're okay. Their admin's fine. Have they been fed, clean their weapons, all that kind of thing, you know. That was an indication. He was saying very subtly to me, you don't need to worry about us. And it's the only time I've ever seen Royal Marines stripping down link and cleaning it literally every single round and every link and putting it all back together again. And if you ever try to put that stuff back together, you know, it kills your thumbs. Uh, well, that was the level we were at. The, the, the bloke stepped up, you know, to, to, to the, the nth degree, basically. So there was never going to be problems with the feet. Mm. And how? And you said you were in that harbour position for a week before you, you moved out. What, what was the order to move out about? Uh, well, it came through the evening before the usual evening O group, um, you know, prepare to move uh, timings and all that sort of stuff. Uh, we, we're yomping. Um, we didn't think we'd have to jump very far because unawares at the time that a ship called the Atlantic Conveyor had been sunk, she contained all the Chinooks except for one. Uh, one had managed to get off previously and, and that was the only sort of you know, heavy uh, helo lift capability that, that the brigade had. Uh, and that included when five brigade turned up, you know, our logistic regiment uh, was actually supplying two brigades and it was only designed to uh, supply one. Uh, but the air support was woefully inadequate because of, we lost those Chinooks when the Atlantic conveyor was sunk. So, um, but we weren't aware of that at the time. I mean, information trickles down to the trenches very, very slowly. Um, the one moment of that week before we move on, I just want to mention part of that process of changing from peace to war mentality. Uh, I think it was about D plus four. And by that time, we'd lost HMS Coventry, HMS Ardent. Uh, HMS Plymouth had been hit, HMS Brilliance had been hit. Um, you know, the ships were going down one a day. It, it was really having a serious effect on us. We were thinking, shit, you know, these aren't just warships. These are our taxes to get us home. Mm -hmm. um, so the reality was rapidly sort of, you know, changing our views. But we just stood down. It was dark. And I'd just been given great news by the company commander that uh, Corporal Harry Siddall, one of, one of the three section commanders in Fife Troop, my troop, uh, had just uh, had a baby girl born, his first daughter. So I went up to him and I said, uh, and this is where the formality, of course, incidentally, took going back to that, that theme, um, didn't seem important anymore. And I just shook him by the hand. And I said, congratulations, Harry, you've just had a baby girl born. And, and almost as I said that, HMS Antelope blew up right in front of us. And that's one of those iconic photographs, and I hate using that word because it's so much of a cliche now, but it truly was an iconical photograph of the ship blowing up. 
and we've been aware that something wasn't right because we've seen a, a thin column of smoke coming out during the day, you know, rising from it, knowing that doesn't look right. But we weren't prepared for that. Uh, and that changed the whole tenor. I don't think anybody turned in that night. We just stood there and watched the ship burn. And, and we were unaware that they'd already got the crew off. Um, but unfortunately, the EOD guy was killed, and I think his oppo lost his arms. Um, Staff Sergeant Prescott, if I remember rightly. Um, but we didn't know that. We just assumed that the whole crew had gone up with it, you know. So, I, you know, I won't say morale ever got to rock bottom, but we certainly got to a couple of points where it was about as bad as it can ever get, which we'll come on to. Yeah. Gosh. So, you set out on this yomp. Where, where are you heading? Uh, I had the great privilege of leading again, you know, I mean, because of my age, I was now 28 and my background and everything else, the CEO just, you know, decided, okay, sure, you're going to do all the work, which is great. <laughs> I thrilled. I really was. Um, Are you sure he didn't want you to, in case there was landmines there or something? <laughs> well, actually, the anti-mine training was pretty scant. You know, it was the DMS boot and the putty, mate, and good luck. But... Um, we yomped off the uh, off the landing craft and and straight up a hill, a place called Port San Carlos, uh, and that's where the reality sunk. You know, the Bergens were massive, and it was just a very slow breathing out your backside sort of plod up the hill. My order was to go to a building called New House. Uh, I can't remember the precise distance now, but I would say less than ten miles away. But over that country, there were no roads, no tracks, nothing. It was just um, just rough country. Uh, it, it was very, very hard going. The navigation wasn't difficult because although there are no features worthy and certain sections of the map had, were just blank and with the words cloud obscured written on them. So there were no features whatsoever, no contours or anything. What there was were the fences and uh, there are no trees in the Falklands outside of Stanley, the, the Port Stanley, the capital. But um, there are the fences and uh, that you can rely on them. So that, that, that was the one aid which confirmed where you were. Otherwise, it was bearing and paces. And as we'd just been doing that for three months in the jungle, that wasn't a problem. Um, that first day was a real eye-opener. We kept going through until last night. We stopped for a scran. I remember us all leaning against the fence and the fence went twang and we all fell over backwards. We were like dead ants. We couldn't get up. It's the only time I've actually seen people having to lift each other up. You know, you couldn't put this burger on and get up. And you certainly couldn't stand up and put it on. You had to lie on your back, roll over, and somebody had to help you up. Uh, and the other taboo which we broke was never, never lean on your weapon. Well, it was impossible not to do that, you know, and guys were using these as a kind of crutch, really. Um, we stopped for Scran, and then the order came, carry on. And so we did. And we found this. We never actually saw the building. I stopped at 3 o'clock in the morning where I thought we were supposed to be. It was a huge swag. It I mean, I was navigating, obviously, but... Um, there was no way of confirming it. And it wasn't until the following few hours later when light came up that I saw the building. I thought, oh, pretty good, sure, not bad. But um, that, that first night we were drained, utterly, totally drained. Uh, so much so that we just went into a huge circle. So you have 650 blokes in a massive circle. H how accurate, I have no idea, because it was dark. And uh, didn't even bother putting a bivvy up. Of course, bivvies need trees. That was one thing we'd overlooked. Um, so... <laughs> The bivvies are pretty amateurish, uh, but didn't even bother with that. And of course, predictably, it rained. And so the sleeping bags got soaking wet, which meant they now weighed three times what they weighed before. Uh, it, was a, it was an admin disaster. And at a stand to the following morning, there was that sort of bleary-eyed reality, you know, oh my giddy aunt, where's the Chinooks? There aren't any Chinooks, carry on. That's how it began. It's crazy to think 
that my tent now, the one that I ran the length of the UK carrying, that was weighed, something. It, it weighs like less than a kilo or something, Andy. And and that yeah. that that tent I've got weighs less than just the, the poncho itself. <laughs> Technology. Yeah, it is. It's amazing what you can do with kit now, isn't it? That's right. So true. And very easy to forget what a real weight is. Uh, I recently put on a 45-pound Bergen just to sort of get myself out of lockdown mood uh, and discovered how tough that is. I thought, oh, my God, I've lost it totally. So, um, yeah, to, to consider those weights now and over that ground. And, in, in well, the weather wasn't really an issue. And to be honest, you know, I really feel that to a Royal Marine, weather is not an issue. Weather affects operations, but it doesn't stop them. And, uh, you know, you just make allowance for it and carry on, basically. We didn't have any of the Gore-Tex stuff that we got today. Uh, the waterproofs we had were called Pusser's tea bags. You were actually wetter inside them than you were outside because of perspiration. They didn't breathe. Um, so you just got used to getting wet. Uh, you had two pairs of socks, one on your feet, one on your shoulders drying out. And you just swapped them over. We did that for a month. I don't remember any issues from that either. It was, uh, living in the, in the field is, is very basic and, and yomping is even more basic. It's the most popular form of transport the MOD has because it costs virtually nothing. And on this particular yomp, they saved money because they didn't feed us for three days. So they made a profit on that yomp. But, uh, and that, that's where the green berry really comes in. I mean, you can take any averagely fit civvy and take him down to Limson and run him around the endurance course or whatever. You know, they can do it. Of course they can. Uh, that's not what it's about. This is what it's about when it comes down to the reality, when you've got to carry this enormous weight, when you have got uh, no support other than your oppos. Um, and even that started to wane. And, uh, you know, you don't get even the basics. You don't even get fed and you haven't got a proper sleeping bag. Then you really are down to steel guts, if you like, you know, grit. Have you got what it takes in your character, not in your muscles, in your character? That's what really matters here. So a very good friend of mine, Andy, a chap I've known for a number of years, was in 4-5. I won't, I won't say his name for, for personal reasons, but... He's told he told me some stories that are just God. They 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 make you so proud of the Royal Marines, and on the other hand, they're so awful. Um, I mean, when he describes some of the yomps, like if if you couldn't keep up, he said they just your oppos had to sit you down, give you a bit of ammunition if they could spare it. And just hope, you know, hope you got picked up by a passing helicopter, perhaps, or, or, um, mm. yeah, basically, what I'm trying to say is they're leaving you to die if you, if, or get captured by the Argentinians or just die of hypothermia. Um, well, on the second night, as we were approaching a place called Douglas, um, recce troop who were well ahead of us, obviously, doing their job, had, had pinged an enemy position on a hill on the far side of the river and suddenly we went into an assault. So uh, we weren't carrying the Bergens for that. Kit was ditched at the previous place. We went straight in. Uh, so we did a river crossing, which was about waist deep, straight up the feature, you know, bayonets fixed, uh, made ready. And they'd legged it very sensibly, they'd gone. So we got on top of this hill, we found their old positions, and then the order was right, we're going firm here. The rest of the unit swung left, didn't cross the river, and went into a nice, warm, comfortable sheep shed for the night. Uh, Yankee Company was left on this bloody hill without the kit, and that was a tough night. We we, we dug a um, uh, we erected a peat wall because we had no shelter, and we got into this polythene bag, which the MOD euphemistically called a survival bag. 
I think it was a bag that fertilizer was delivered in. Anyway, my radio operator, my runner and I, the three of us managed to get into this one bag. I don't know how the hell we managed that. But before that, we'd had the O group and the company commander had called us in and he told us about the Battle of Goose Green. And that was the 28th of May. That was the day that Colonel Jones was killed and 17 others of his battalion and a Royal Marine um, in the first land battle. And up to that point, we had no idea it was happening. Of course, we had very, my mother in Wales knew more about the Falklands War than I did. And uh, so it came as a complete surprise to discover that you know, a battalion attack had been put in. It was a very gutsy thing. Got great respect for the Paris, uh, massively outnumbered. Uh, none of the support they expected just went in cold. And it was, uh, yeah. But to hear that the CO had been killed along with everybody else, that was a real shock. And then on top of that, the final bit of information that we got was that um, the World Service had announced this to the enemy before they actually attacked. The BBC World Service told the world, including the enemy, that we were about to attack Goose Green. And Colonel Jones apparently said in his O group he was going to sue the bastards when he got back. Well, obviously he didn't. But well, you know, when we heard that thing, that was the thing that was the real kick in the morale element. That's what I mean about we're down to ourselves now. We have no outside contact with anybody. It's just you and me, and that's it. There's nothing else we can rely upon. We can't even rely upon our own establishment back in London. And I can't tell you what an effect that had on the troops on the ground. But being a positive person, it was actually a good effect because whatever vestiges of humanity were left, we were now just killing machines. We've got to kill these bastards. That's the only way we're going to get home. There's no question of the bigger picture and all that stuff. And certainly in my mind, I was totally resolved. I remember the anger of the troop when I told them this. I remember the anger. It was palpable me. I thought, my God, I don't want to be on the wrong side of this lot. And I think it had an effect, a good effect, but pff, still not the right reason to do it. Yeah. I just wanted to make the point that BBC are the enemy and they still are to this day. Um, I don't get political, mate, but we know what's happened. Yeah. We'll never, we will never forget. Yeah. We all know what's going on. Well, those yeah. of us that have been around the block, we know, we know sure. what's happening. We, we, it's just hard to have a voice to say it. Um, um, and also, through one of these uh, bloody media companies, they, they told the Argentines that their bombs weren't arming at the same. Uh, at a same. That's right. There's so much more. We could talk like this for a week, mate. There's so much to tell. But uh, you're right. That's right. That, that was the first incident, which we didn't know about at that time. We subsequently found out later on that they'd been informing the enemy that their bombs weren't armed correctly. A lot of ships got hit and, and the bombs didn't go off. The LSLs particularly, the landing ships. Um, but after that, they, they changed the arming for the weapons and then they started having more effect. Mm -hmm. But just to pick up on that point you mentioned about your mate talking about being left behind, this happened to me later on in the Yomp. Um, getting close to the mountains, we'd been Yomp for about four or five days, and uh, my radio operator suddenly fell over uh, in great pain. His ankle had gone. I mean, we were walking across elephant tussock grass. It was a horrible country. I had to take it all off him immediately. I mean, you got the whole unit behind you backing up. You can't stop the unit. So, uh, they just kept on going. I grabbed his 351, his PRC 351, said, give us your codes. Um, what else was there? Oh, you had some spare ammo. You don't need that. <laughs> Take it all off him. Uh, it's 8,000 miles that way. Good luck. See you after the war. And left him. Uh, he sat there for a couple of days. A helicopter picked him up and flew him straight to the LSL Galahad. And he landed on the Galahad 30 minutes before it was bombed, in which 48 Welsh guardsmen were killed. And uh, he developed PTSD. And now I'm afraid he's terminally ill with cancer as a result of that for what he went through. He didn't get a scratch, but his mind was pretty much destroyed, I think, to be fair. He's a tough lad. Love him to bits. But yeah. just having to leave him and to turn around to the next one and say, right, you're now the RO. Put this gear on. This is all on the hoof. You know, not stopped. Mm -hmm. That's the reality. 
Yeah. Um, just as an aside, the reason I'm not going to say my friend's name is that he's suffering now. And it took him many are. 40, 40 years. I mean, he was a kid. He was 18 down there. Yeah. Having to take those mountains, you know, and mm. and it's only just now diagnosed. I don't even know if that's the right right word, but, you know, he's gone to a GP and the GP said, I, I think you might be suffering PTSD. Well, obviously he suffered it for 40 40 years, never been to a reunion, never worn a met his, his barrier, his met, just doesn't want anything to, to you know. The, the yeah. Interesting, just to talk about PTSD for a second, because I am an expert, is that um, nobody can predict when this is going to pre present itself. It, it, it's, I won't call it bizarre, but it is completely random. The, the best example I've got of this is one of the very first people I helped, which is actually before I formed the charity I'm running now. Uh, long before that, was a 90-year-old gentleman who came all the way from New Zealand to find me. And the reason he did that was he was a distant relative. None of us knew anything about this chap. And he turned up and he just spoke about his experiences with the Japanese and left. Uh, he didn't even sit down and have a cup of tea. And this was in Wales. It was bizarre. Um, and as he was leaving, this, this middle-aged woman who turned out to be his granddaughter said to us, now I know why he's come back. She said, we, we thought he was coming back to see the old country one last time. No, he came here to find you. Uh, I was so gobsmacked. I can't remember a single thing he said, but um, there's an example of a bloke in his 90s had never said a word to his family or anybody else, but had to get it out at some point. So the time element is it's bizarre, frankly. Well, let's, Andy, let, we're going to come on and talk about that because it's a very pertinent and, and, and serious issue, at this, particularly at this moment in time. And also, just quickly, you're the first person I've met that understands PTSD in the same way that I do. And that's, that's very rare. Um, I'll exp I'll, I don't want to lose the, the, the thrust of our, our chat, but we'll, we will talk about that. Um, the other thing that we're forgetting is rations and water were in, or clean water, obviously it's all around you, but it, it's in short supply. And a lot of the guys develop dysentery is, is this correct? Uh, there were cases. I didn't see it myself or fortunately suffer, but um, I, I did hear of people. That's right. Um, I don't want to malign anybody and say it was down to poor hygiene because without evidence, it's wrong to say anything. But uh, we were warned about the liver fluke possibility with the water drinking, you know, the local stuff. Uh, there was no shortage, obviously. Um, being a, you know, based, an economy based on sheep farming, it's not surprising there's bound to be something floating around. But, you know, given the amount of rainfall, you think, oh, come on, we're not drinking out of a puddle here. We're drinking out of running streams and so on. And, of course, we've got the sterilization tablets, which, you know, tastes like a swimming pool. It's quite nice, isn't it, once you get used to it? Um, now, I, I think uh, the dysentery might have been a, a combination of things. And, of course, in a unit of 650, you're bound to get some problems anyway. It's, it's inevitable, isn't it? So combination of factors, basically. Um, but we ignored the liver fluke thing. And I think just drinking more alcohol sort of solves that problem. So... Uh, we were quite good at that sort of thing. Um, the food side of life, well, yeah, we didn't get fed for about three days. And that was a really interesting element as well, because it makes you search yourself. I mean, are you really going to share your last AB biscuit with your radio operator or keep it to yourself? And, and that argument, when you've got nothing else to do on a, on a yomp, but suffer the pain and stick to a bearing, uh, it's surprising what you occupy your mind with. And, and that became a big issue in my head was, you know, should I give this to Robson or should I eat it myself? I know he's got less than I have and all this sort of thing. Yeah, it, it tests you. But um, back to the green berry again. You know, at the end of the day, you've just got to get on with it, frankly. 
uh, we were all like whippets. I look at today's Royal Marines and their muscle bosons. I mean, they're, they're fantastic looking physiques, but we were just whippets, mate. We had nothing on us at all. We were completely spare. Proving you don't need muscles. That's the only muscle you need. Yes, exactly. What, um, which was your first attack then? Well, the first attack was the event. Um, we were attacked uh, by aircraft. And actually, well, let's put this into context. Um, when we completed the OMP and we got up into the mountains, a place called Mount Kent, we were on the what's called the reverse slope, i.e. The, the side opposite to where the enemy is, uh, in dead ground, we, we stopped. And uh, there was a huge resupply there. I don't know how the RSM had managed to do this, but he got ahead of the unit. And I remember him stood on top of it, Pat Chapman with his SLR guarding it and issuing stuff out as we filed past. We went into defense. We didn't dig trenches because the ground was impossible. It was all rock. So you kind of built sangers or, or got into nooks and crannies. It, you know, it wasn't the conventional thing. Uh, adapt, of course, as you always do. Um, we had one night there where we got bombed by something. Uh, we, I believe a big bomb was chopped off the back of a Hercules, which was a near miss, funny enough. Uh, and the following night, I was told, right, you're going forward and you're going to set up in, independently uh, you know, to, to harass the enemy. Cause casualties and harass the enemy. That was the generic mission. Mm. Um, it took 16 hours to move 4,000 meters. We had a proper uh, um, Antarctic gale right on the nose, perfect cover for what we're doing. And on the way to this position I was looking for in the dark, which was just a spot on the map, uh, we came across the position that the Argies had abandoned when the BBC World Service you know, warned them off that we were about to attack Goose Green. They left all their kit behind, which was a great prop for us. We got lots of onions and tins of corned beef and stuff like that. And we also found um, some operational overlays, which basically solved the war's problems with intelligence. That was a huge coup for which Corporal Hannah, who found that, never got any recognition. But anyway, we, we struggled to this place overnight and we set up uh, a base in the middle of nowhere in the rocks. We had to keep um, you know, uh, below ground, as it were, uh, during the daytime. But we had 16 hours of darkness uh, but, you know, moving into the austral winter. Uh, to, to, to uh, Andy, could you speak up a bit? I don't know why we've lost a bit of volume. I'm, I'm just conscious of the people that will be listening on iTunes will be. Sure, mate. Yeah, I'll speak a bit louder. How's that? That's, Is that better? that's much better. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, perhaps I'm falling asleep. <laughs> well, I have heard this story before, you see. <laughs> uh, not that I'm bored. No. Um, anyway, cut the, stop waffling. Let's get on with it. Um, so uh, there I was in this forward operating base in no man's land, well forward of the unit, 4,000 meters in front, uh, with three power on my left flank, 4-2 commando, a long way off on the right flank, and, and just the enemy. Uh, to, to cause the casualties, we just brought down fire missions. And it was a bizarre observation that once you dropped a fire mission, the enemy would go up and inspect the craters. I mean, you just repeat, it was unbelievable. You know, I couldn't believe these people were so basic. Um, by this time, of course, with you know, everything that had been going on beforehand, we'd lo we lost any kind of sympathy for the enemy. So there was, there was no emotional connection with what we were doing. Let's put it that way. I think it's fair to say we were probably sort of two-dimensional focused on the job, and that's it. Um, by the way, I never take anything to war with me. No photographs or nothing. You know, I, I don't have any mementos from home. Home stays at home and war's war and you don't mix the two sort of thing. During the night, we were doing these long recce patrols. That was our primary function was to find out what was actually there. And it took a while because of the, the minefield threat. You know, that was a, another mine concentrating experience. Uh, with, with no detectors of any sort, and the Argies didn't mark their mines, so we had no idea where they were or what they had. Um, 
all the only information we had came from Jane's, of course, you know, the, the publication that deals with all the world's armed forces. Um, but personal knowledge, very little. So, um, and also information wasn't filtering down from what had been learned at Goose Green at this point. It never, never reached us. So we didn't learn any lessons from, you know, what was currently there. However, at the end of that time, um, I was told, right, you're now going to conduct a fighting patrol onto the objective, which is this mountain called Two Sisters. And your mission is to find their mortar positions and to destroy them. Now, this is a boy's own task. This is exactly what you train for. This is what you've hoped for. Uh, but I don't want to give the impression that I was sort of leaping around for joy. It was actually a very sobering thing to be told because uh, the risk for it was very high. Uh, there was a strong possibility that um, some of us weren't going to make it. And up to this point, uh, you know, we'd more, apart from losing the radio operator through wrecking his ankles, we, we, we'd been very lucky. Uh, a normal battle procedure took place, uh, full battle procedure. I've never cut any corners with this. Even in Ireland, where you did repetitive patrols for six months, every single time went through the whole thing, the proper orders process. And, and, and this, of course, was an, the, the greatest challenge I'd ever faced. And I had the biggest command I'd ever had, not just in terms of people. I was 42 because I had four engineers attached to me uh, whose function was to destroy their mortars. Um, I had a section four guys from Recce Troop who were going to aid us by you know, acting as scouts. Um, I had a mortar fire controller controlling a section of our own mortars. And I also had a mortar uh, forward observation officer who was controlling the entire gun line of 2-9 commando. So I had a pretty awesome firepower. Um, I felt confident, but the risks, as I say, were very high. The, my biggest fear was getting caught out on the extraction phase, which we had to extract by the same route in, which is normally a no-no, but we didn't have the, the, you know, the, the flexibility to do anything other than that, that. And I could see us getting caught, perhaps in a minefield in daylight between two enemy positions with no Kazavak, because there was no Kazavak compared to what we're used to today. Um, that was my greatest fear. Anyway, it didn't happen. We did the full battle procedure, which included night rehearsals, although did the night rehearsals slightly early before it got actually dark because I wanted to maximize on the darkness as much as possible. And just before we left, uh, a gazelle helicopter flew up to my location, which was an absolute no-no because he's basically compromised us. But he didn't stop. He just went to the hover and he handed me a piece of paper, literally stuck his hand out the window and vanished. And it came straight from our int and it said, beware of a thing called 601 commando that's uh, in the area. Uh, carry on with the mission, don't cut the phone lines to Stanley. And because we were going so far beyond the range of everything, um, this section of mortar troop, our own mortar troop, Corps Sign 56 Bravo, had been sent forward to give us support. And just before it got dark, I actually saw them moving a couple hundred meters away towards their position, the intended position. So I knew that they were in the area. Uh, it got dark and we set off. Uh, and more as straight away, I had to go to the front uh, where the lead scout was and tell him to speed up. He was going too slow. You know, the, the one old adage is always take your risks early when you're doing this kind of thing. And we knew the ground anyway. He was naturally cautious, but we, we, we didn't have the time. So he speeded up a bit. About one hour later, we got to the first RV, RV1, which was the end of a stone run. But before we actually stopped and went into the, the procedure for the RV, we actually halted suddenly and everybody got down. Uh, it was pitch dark. Couldn't see my hand in front of my face. Uh, we had a full moon. It was it was um, on the rise all the way through that week. But on this particular night, a total cloud cover, couldn't see anything. Uh, and we had none of us, except for the recce troop scout, had um, a night sight. So it was just the Mark 1 eyeball. Anyway, so this guy sent the message, you know, um, boss on me sort of thing. I crawled up to the front and he handed over his weapon. I looked through his sight and now I can see this blob. 
I wasn't sure what it was. And uh, it, because the old first generation night sights were very basic, uh, they relied on ambient light, starlight, and we had none. So without that, virtually useless. But he had seen something. And as I watched this blog, I saw it seeing it moving. And I realized it was a group of people. And then suddenly a light came on and that confirmed it. So uh, the, the, the next few minutes at the most, possibly seconds, were very, very fast. Um, I then sent out through the various channels to section commanders, prepare for an ambush. This is a hasty ambush. Um, through zero, go back to our CP, command post, check that there's nobody out from three para who were on our left flank. The, the, the inter-unit boundary, there was nothing on the ground. It was just a, a line on the map. Very, very dangerous. Um, check the guns are ready. They're unmasked if we need them, which we probably will. And also, where's that mortar section? You know, are they ready to support us as well? So while all this was going on, I was still looking through this night site and I could see this group starting to break up and they were starting to move and they were starting to move towards us. So now the, the, the speed was moving very, very fast or maybe it's frozen. I can't, you know, it's a long time ago, but your memory is very selective of certain things. It's interesting how there are gaps. But anyway, I clearly remember seeing them coming towards us. And by now we'd all shuffled around to cover the arcs of this, what was now a hasty ambush. Uh, we had rehearsed this, I think, if I remember rightly. So, you know, we, there was no orders required. It was all hand signals. And the drill was when the last man of this force is within the arc, the recce um, scout will tap me on the shoulder and that will tell me he's there and I'll initiate by firing a shamuli. Um, what became obvious was that they weren't on a sort of reciprocal parallel bearing because one of the thoughts that ran through my mind is let them go let somebody else deal with this this is not our task um but that was quickly squashed by the other side the dark side if you like and i thought no these are the bastards that have caused all this we're going to kill them and but that decision wasn't even a 50 50 because it was very clear that they were actually on a converging bearing they, they were going to step on the rear of us the front man was suddenly going to discover us and the element of surprise if we lost so there was no option here that was fortunate. As they were moving in front, I could start to hear movement. I could hear their waterproofs, frankly. Swish, swish, swish. Bits of kick clicking and things like this. And through the site, I couldn't identify anything. All I could just see was vague figures. Um, then I got the tap on the shoulder. I fired the shamuli. As soon as I fired it, I knew I'd done the wrong thing because the drill, as you probably remember, Chris, is that um, if the light goes up very close, you hit the deck instantly. If it goes up at a distance, you freeze and you just go down with the shadows. And I, in that sort of two-second pause between firing this thing and it popping, I just expected everybody to vanish. Well, when it popped, of course, it, it didn't happen. There were 21 figure 11 targets frozen directly in front of us. The shock effect was so, they must have all been, what the hell was that? And that was it. And down it went. Uh, we, I kept putting the light up. Um, the feeling of relief, having done the hardest thing in my life, pulling that trigger in cold blood. Uh, the great fear that this was the point section of a commando attack. There could be 650 enemy right here that I can't see. We're about to get rolled up. All this kind of stuff going through your mind and it flashes through in seconds from one end of the spectrum to the other. It's incredible how brain, the brain runs so fast, which is why there's sometimes confusion afterwards. Mm. Um, and then a kind of feeling of elation. I could hear the screaming. We'd obviously hit targets. And that, incidentally, from a PTSD point of view, is why I could never cope with my daughter's crying, because it's the same sound. And, um, and then I ran out of light, and it went dark. 
and all the firing stopped. And in that sudden horrible silence, I heard a British voice shout, stop firing, we're five, six Bravo. And that's when I realized this wasn't the enemy at all. This was our own mortar section we just ambushed. And that was the moment when my life changed. You know, the before and after bit, there's two distinct halves to my life. And, and that was the exact moment. And that was about 12, 12.30 on the 10th, I think it was, of June, uh, 1982. Um, it took the rest of the night to sort out. We'd killed four and very seriously injured three more. Um, I was ordered to carry on with the mission. I disobeyed that order. Um, practically because there wasn't enough light left, or darkness rather, we would never have achieved it. Uh, but the main reason was I wasn't up for it. The troop would have obeyed orders. Obviously, if I'd said we're going, there would have been some grunting and muttering, I'm sure, but we'd have cracked on, but um, I couldn't do it. So we went back to the harbor, and uh, I said to my troop sergeant, I don't want anybody on sentry tonight. I don't want anybody sitting here fiddling with the triggers, thinking about what's just happened. Um, and I turned in. I'm sure he did the right thing, whatever that was. I've got no idea, but probably he just ignored me that. And short while after, very short while after, a helicopter arrived as, as we stood down and took me back to Commando HQ for a debrief. Um, all I met was sympathy. Uh, there was massive understanding. We'd um, unfortunately done the job very professionally. And unfortunately, um, our victims had made some mistakes. They basically got lost, or they'd rather overshot, to be precise. They weren't totally lost, but they weren't exactly where they should have been. And in that kind of situation, um, that is not the time to sort of mislead people. When, when asked were they on high ground, the answer was yes. In fact, we were all on low ground. I think they were fudging it. Uh, and they were moving fast in front of me because the realization had sunk in that we need them and they need to get to their intended position, uh, which unfortunately they'd overshot, uh, which is why they were coming from the wrong direction. So it's so easy to misread situations. And in moments like that, when you've literally got seconds to make decisions, you know, it's, it's impossible. And a blue on blue is something that happens in every single conflict. And, and all of them have those kind of elements in them somewhere. You know, one little thing leads to something bigger and so on, a chain of events that suddenly you're out of, you know, that you're no longer controlling. And that situation, I was definitely out of control. Once we'd initiated, that was it. So um, anyway, uh, the debrief lasted about 15 minutes, if that. There was a lot of hugging and a few tears. And then uh, the CEO said, right, well, get back short. Uh, the big days arrived tonight we're going to attack you know you'll be getting your orders stand by for that and that was it and that was the very last thing ever anything was ever said about that particular event uh i how, went back to the group and we carried on how did they get the injured guys out it, it... well as i say it took all night um the elements that well just explain the whole thing um once the shock had gone through which actually that probably didn't go through that quickly the horror sort of crept in and then all the after effect. And I remember a lot of angry voices from my troop, people very, very angry. Um, the lads that we'd attacked had vanished. Some apparently, I don't know if this is true, but I'd heard some had actually run all the way back about 4,000 meters and nearly got vittled up by their own sentries. I also heard another story years and years later, of one guy that woke up the next morning and his hair had turned completely white. I say the next morning, literally a few hours later. Um, things of that nature. Well, I gave the sit rep straight away. The CEO came straight on the, on the radio and said, right, well, first of all, all around defense, obviously he started talking me through what needs to be done, which was very useful. Um, we need to find the kit. We need it. And um, we've got to deal with the casualties. Now there was no Casivac. So what they had to do was um, ground load all the ammunition that was loaded onto a thing called a BV. This is a, a tracked vehicle 
um, Swedish thing made by Haglunds, I think, which we used in Norway. Great oversnow vehicles, not armored, just just uh, literally an articulated uh, tracked vehicle. And that had to be unloaded. And then we had to send, I think we sent three blokes back to guide this through the rock runs. One of the features of the Falklands is a unique geographical features, these stone runs. I still don't know why they're there, but uh, anyway, they're proper obstacles, nightmare to get stuck in. And uh, we needed to guide them up through that. Of course, all this is done in the dark. Now, at this point, we are under three para on one side, uh, the enemy on two sisters on another side, the enemy on Mount Longdon on a third side, and unbeknownst to me, our own OP from surveillance troop sitting on the forward edge of Mount Kent, we're underneath all of these positions, directly underneath them. They thought they were being attacked, so they tried to call a fire mission down on us as well. So we nearly had a double blue on blue, but fortunately somebody switched on and the command post said, we'll stop everything, let's just work this out. Um, I was any second expecting a hail of fire or at least artillery or mortars or something. Funny enough, nothing happened. And then it got bizarre. We had to line out with our torches and start looking for kit. Now, I can't remember finding any kit and the guys in mortar troop assured me they never dropped any. Um, but nonetheless, we had to make that effort. Eventually, the BVs got up to us and um, the, the dead lads were put in sleeping bags and were put on the roof, I believe. And the three very seriously injured guys were put inside where it was warmer uh, and, and Kazivak back through the system. And that was as far as that was my end of my connection with them. Um, so I, I don't know what happened beyond that. But they would. what I do know is that everybody that got back to the field hospital where we'd originally started in Ajax Bay alive, everybody that arrived there alive survived, which is a huge accolade to the doctors there. You must have been in deep shock, I'm, I'm guessing. I went from one end of the universe to the other in a split second. Yeah. I, I was, I'm not ashamed to say this. I was, elated isn't the right word. It's, it, I can't find an adjective to describe how you feel in battle when you've, you've got the edge on the enemy, when you know you're killing him and he can't kill you. And I'm afraid this is not being melodramatic. This is, it's a very black and white situation. It is a kill or, ki or be killed situation. Uh, you can't afford to think deeply about ending. You know, you, you, you are basically, Focus on the job. That's all there is to it. There's nothing outside of those parameters. Uh, you just get on with it. When your life's at risk, of course, that's wholly understandable. This is why everybody has tunnel vision in car accidents. You know, they don't see anything else. And why everybody's perspective is different as well. So two guys on a battlefield have completely different views of that battlefield. And, and nobody agrees. But in my case, um, the sense of disbelief was the first thing I remember. I, my brain couldn't understand the information coming through the ears. And... Uh, wasn't until I got up to where these lads were and saw the evidence of what we'd done that you know the reality started to creep in. Of course, those images took 30 odd years to deal with. Um, I won't talk about them now because it's probably very upsetting to some people, but you can imagine what they were. Uh, that was the, the horror side of it. Um, then there's an overwhelming wave of shame and um, failure. You know, This is the ultimate failure that doesn't get any bigger. And now that you know my background, having come from, you know, King's Badger and a Sword of Honor, all that sort of stuff, having had the honor of taking all these wonderful, you know, tasks that the CEO heaped on me, bless him, thank you, just suddenly failing at this level is, is just, it's incomprehensible. So I think there was a sort of tearing apart of my psyche. Something was going on inside here um, because I just couldn't comprehend what I was seeing. Um, but of course, well, it wasn't it wasn't your failure though, Andy? Was it? It was it, no. it was the other the other troops. I mean, not obviously. No one's blaming anybody. That's not how it works in 
not in the military, not in war, but you know, it, it these things they they have as I said to you before, they happened to us in you know, we lost a guy in um Belfast in the second week and circumstances around that weren't very you know, I won't I won't go into it, but they they weren't very pleasant and we just picked our weapons up and went back out on patrol. It's just what it's what you do, isn't it? What you do. Exactly right. What else can you do? But I can't imagine your situation. You've now got to lead your troop up a mountain to attack the enemy, but you're already in shock from this incident the night before. It it, it beggars belief. I think the reality of what we were about to do probably overrode all those other emotions. Those emotions, of course, just didn't switch off. They were going on there, uh, you know. Um, being occupied, you could say, is probably the best thing. And often that's the case, isn't it? When people have, you know, accidents, things go wrong or badly, that's often the best way to deal with them is to keep yourself occupied, not to brood on stuff. Um, and in that sense, I was the luckiest of the troop because I still had a lot to think about, whereas the junior Marine had nothing to think about which is why I originally said Sergeant Milne, you know, I don't want anyone in a century. Um, the, the thinking and the shock and the real effects of the PTSD elements, if you like, kicked in much, much later. But uh, while we were there, it was just literally bang, 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 straight into the attack. We, 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 we were on the way the following evening, you know, 12 hours after that, I mean, pardon me. Um, we, we were on our way up to the mountain and that that certainly preoccupied our thoughts you know there was yesterday was gone and forgotten metaphorically <laughs> it wasn't so much later that uh, the reality started to creep in so at mount kent what i'm i'm guessing you're in the same startup line as as my friend that we've been talking about do you know what company he was in i think he was whiskey Oh, we didn't have a whiskey then. Um, we had three rifle companies, X-Ray, Yankee, and Zulu. It, it, whiskey came in much later. I was gonna, left, all, I think. All yeah. I was, all, what I was trying to get at is he wasn't Zulu because obviously Zulu's got the, the, a lot of um, kind of uh, tradition atta attached to that company. And I know that he wasn't in that one. So I'm probably stabbing in the dark if I... I right. Maybe Yankee. Um, ah, well, Mike uh, might know him then. Uh, I, I mean, I'll tell you what he told me. He said, Chris, we lined out. He said the first thing everyone did was take their battle bowler and throw it away, and they put their green lids on. He he's, talking he's talking metaphorically there, Chris, because I don't think any of us actually had a battle bowler at that point. We ditched our NBC suits. We ditched the, the helmet. And any other stuff that we didn't think we needed. The only person wearing a helmet in that battle was the commanding officer. Everybody else was wearing a green lid. Mm. But he's right. In, you've talked metaphorically there. We had ditched all that stuff. Yeah. And then, I mean, I don't want to steal your, 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 your I was going to say thunder, <laughs> but steal your story, Andy. But he, he just said all those drills that you learned at Limston, you know, in my case, it was safety catch, change lever, check your top round, fit. He said, Fuck all that. He said, all that went out the window. You just walked towards the enemy until people started getting shot either side of you. Then you went to ground and he said it was just empty that magazine as, as quickly as you fucking can. 
get your mates. He said, none of this, like, stowing it away. He's like, fuck that, next one on. And he, he was just saying, yeah, the, I think he was trying to, I think he got across to me the reality of war as opposed to the the, the theoretical side of it. Was, was that your experience? Well, he was a young Marine, and um, I can't speak for his uh, leadership. I don't know who he was and who they were. And 4-5 was known as the penal battalion. It's where they sent the mis miscreants from brigade. Because the, the bulk of the corps was based around Plymouth and the West Country, as you know then. Uh, and so, you know, it was a unit. I won't say it was a law unto itself, and I don't want to give the impression it was unprofessional. It wasn't. But years later, when I was trained by the army at Brecon for a year, two years, and then trained our own officers at Limson for three years, we'd moved a long way from that mentality in 82. In 82, by comparison, I would say we cuffed things a little bit. And what I mean by that is that the battle procedure wasn't really necessary because you just relied on the guys to be professional enough to do the job. And so what your friend told you is probably true. You know, that uh, there were guys who just did their own thing. Um, I've been with, you know, organizations that are very, very precise about it and people do act almost like machines and, and they do carry out the drills properly. And there's no question about it in my mind you know, having trained every rank in, in tactics, that the drill is the right way to do things. It's designed. You want to remember that pamphlet 45 was written in blood, not by some academic who thinks he knows better than everybody else. The people who wrote that actually did it for real. And so consequently, um, the whole thing is, uh, you know, if, if, you, if you go outside of that, you, you run a risk. Uh, as a young Marine, that's my wife, by the way. Hello, love. She's just doing the, hanging up the washing. <laughs> Sorry, you're just talking to the world. Um, I did warn her. Uh, if you go outside of those those drills, you know, they, they can be consequences. Um, from my my perspective, we, we followed the drill exactly. You know, the whole battle I, procedure was carried guess, out properly. I guess, Andy, my training came after the Falklands. I was uh, 88, so what's that, six years? Yeah. The lessons learned, <clears throat> the lessons learned down south probably formulated a lot of... Yes. The, Absolutely true. Uh, and, and I heard stories of, I felt some sympathy for the trainers at Limson that hadn't gone to the Falklands, uh, people running junior and senior command courses, uh, generally between weapon instructors, who had to stick to the book, the Bible. And yet there were guys coming back saying, we didn't do it that way, we did it this way. And uh, both were right. Uh, just to give an indication of that, um, go back to that week we were doing all the recce's before we did the, um, the intended attack on the mortar position. Uh, we discovered that the best formation was what we call the blob formation. Now, you know formations. You've got diamonds, you've got arrowheads, single fire, what have you. Um, all of those stand out at nighttime on grass that's very similar to, the, to Dartmoor. Dartmoor's very yellow, and you're there in dark DPM at nighttime under a full moon. It's, it's almost like daylight, um, and, and we felt very naked. So the blob formation, not looking anything like a formation, actually seemed to work. I've got no way of proving it did work. Maybe the Argies are asleep that night. But that's an example of what I'm saying. Guys came back from the South Atlantic and said, we're not doing it this way and so on. So it did cause some friction. But after they'd actually done all the analysis and what have you, you know, and people didn't necessarily rip up the books and rewrite them, but sort of adopted new ideas as a result of that, that's where the changes occurred. And when I look at today's core and the way they operate now, I mean, it's very, very impressive. I mean, very impressive. Um, that's as a direct result. Everything's been learned in the, in the Middle East, I'm sure of it. So can you talk us through the attack? Well, it was a straightforward, um, <laughs> straightforward, or any plan straightforward. Uh, it was a straightforward infantry attack. A night, it was called a, a, a night commando 
silent, noisy, deliberate attack. That was the proper term. Uh, in which the CO's plan was there'd be two sort of um, directions, two pincers, if you like. Um, the main part of the unit, which was Yankee and Zulu Company, I was in Yankee Company, would attack sort of the left pincer, and X-ray Company would come in on the right-hand side. And this was because the mountain had two features. That's why it was called Two Sisters. And so the intention was for X-ray Company to attack the first feature. And the reason the CO wanted to stagger this was to make sure that all the fire that was coming from X-ray Company didn't actually land on the rest of us because we'd be more or less directly opposite it. In the event it didn't happen that way, X-ray Company got stuck in one of these dreadful stone runs. There was a delay of, as a result of that. Um, HO, I think I've forgotten exactly when it was, about 0100, I think. Um, I mean, it had taken all night just to move to the start line, which is only a couple of kilometers. Again, just the reality of moving troops at night with big weights over that sort of country. Uh, we'd spend a week looking for crossings over the River Murrell, which ran straight through the middle of no man's land. And that was a proper chest deep wade in places in full spate in winter. In the event, we used the bridge, <laughs> something you should never do. But actually, that was the right decision because we'd have been, you know, hypothermic. I mean, it was just about zero temperatures. And in fact, no. It was below zero. And the reason I say that is when I went back 11 years later, I was horrified to discover a minefield right where we'd laid in what we call the form-up position, the FUP, on the front of which is the start line, nowadays called the line of departure. And there must have been about 450-odd, 500 people lying in a minefield, and nobody went bang. And it's purely because the ground was frozen, I'm sure of it. But uh, anyway, so that was the, the plan, a sort of two-pincer attack in two phases, and it fell over. So in the end, we all attacked at the same time. And Zulu Company had the task of getting us onto the ridge. Uh, there was about a thousand meters of open ground. And in direct contrast to 12 hours previously when my blue on blue had occurred, we couldn't see our hands in front of the face on this night. There was hardly any cloud and there was a full moon. It was broad daylight, it was terrifying. So not long after we started the yomp, crossed the open ground in which I ate an entire ration pack. And I remember lying in the FUP for two hours shivering, thinking, is this fear or is it the cold? And my mind went back to the careers office the day I joined up and I thought I didn't anticipate this. Um, and I also remember thinking, if I went up there now and just said, look, put your weapons down, nobody has to kill anybody. All those kind of thoughts were going through my mind racing, you know, great fear, real fear. Um, almost to the point where you can't move until suddenly the CEO appeared and galvanized everybody and off we went. And Zulu Company had gone most of the way up towards the ridge before the enemy spotted them and then it all began. And I just stopped at that point uh, behind them and turned around to sit down because I was hearing guys from behind saying, slow down. This was the gunners who were carrying so much ammo. I mean, incredible amounts. We'd left the Bergens, of course, just in fighting order and ammo. Um, but they couldn't keep up. I was going too fast. So I sat down. And while I had my back to the enemy, I heard this round go off and then bang. Suddenly all this fire went flying past and that was it. Just rolled over and got into the prone position. And we must have laid there for goodness knows how long. But it wasn't long after the, um, the initial contact that the enemy started chucking the artillery and mortars and that started landing amongst us. And then it got really hairy. Um, two things that had been passed down from the chain of command is don't make ready until you're in contact, uh, which surprised some. And I think was possibly not the best decision. Uh, but I, I know what was behind it was the fear of an ND giving away surprise, which you know, arguable whether that would have happened. I think probably not. And the other one was no radio checks because we knew the enemy was monitoring the, the, the airwaves. So consequently, when it's kicked off, um, we switched on the radio. My radio operator, Robson, rolled over. He had it in his Norgy patrol pack. 
um, I switched it on and he, I said, what are you hearing? He said, you could hear nothing. And this is the most incredible noise. There's stuff going off everywhere. Um, it was obvious we weren't on the right frequency. So we'd, we'd trained for this. So we zeroed everything in the dark and clicked up. I you know, memorized the frequency, 358.6 or whatever it was. And as soon as I clicked the last digit, through came the noise. And that's where the voice procedure fell over. And there were people screaming they'd been hit and they were dying and they needed the medic and all this sort of stuff. Um, total chaos, really. So the radio actually made things worse rather than better. And at the same time, I heard of somebody shout out, there's a, um, a counterattack coming in on the flank. Now, no idea where that came from. Um, so much that has never been corroborated since. And there are things that have happened that I've convinced happened that never did happen so you know my brain was all over the bloody place to be honest um but i'm now co coping with this idea what's happening on the flank uh trying to work out we're on the flank it's our job to sort of protect it we'll have to shift through 90 degrees at the same time looking at my left hand section that's in it's still in a single file we haven't got into extended line because we're behind zulu company and zulu company is now fighting its way onto the ridge and of course all the stuff that's been fired at them is coming straight at us and we can't return fire um, and I, could, I see this stuff going past Corporal Bell's section beneath him, um, all these uh, tracers. So I screamed at him to get over, and he came across to me along with his section. But one guy remained, and, and I was shouting in his ear, who the hell is that, and using more profane language. Uh, and we worked out it was a guy who had the same sermon as me. Um, and we were all shouting his name, and he wasn't reacting. And I started to think, is he dead? But he didn't look dead. He just seemed to be sort of lying there and sort of almost as if he was asleep. Um, and I was thinking, somebody's got to go and get him. And eventually, I thought, it's got to be me. I, and that's that interesting thing, that battle, you know, uh, section battle drill about ordering somebody to stand up. I couldn't do it. So I thought, right, I'll have to do it. And then I had this brainwave, and I felt around, and in the dark, I found a rock. So I picked this thing up, and I threw it, and it bounced straight off his green lid. And as it hit him, his head sort of came up like that, you know. And I'm like, get over here, you whatever. Mm -hmm. And he crawled over, and I grabbed him, and I was going to drop him. I was, and then I, I got his face close to me. I could see he got flannelette in both ears. <laughs> As soon as the firing started, he just ripped up the flannel and stuck some in his ears. And he was sort of like, you know, I'll wait till this is over. Dead cool bloke. Absolutely cool. So, I mean, this is the bizarre thing about war. You see funny things like that, which are hilarious at the time, which on recollection aren't that funny. But, um, and then, of course, you've got the opposite side as well. And, and behind us, um, uh, OC6 troop had been hit and we thought he was dead. The guy next to him had been killed. He was an engineer, all engineer. Um, there was another guy being injured and then I heard screaming on my right flank that was four troop and I know one of the corporals very well and uh, blue had just been hit and blue died and so this was happening all around us uh, while we were taking all this incoming and of course the fear factor is massive and um, I remember the, uh, the forward observation officer shouting over the radio get your head down there's 4.5 incoming this was from HMS Glamorgan who was sitting out at sea and that is a shell, I can tell you. I mean, 105, 155, that's a bloody big bang, but a 4.5 is something else. You know, people describe artillery as like a, sh a train coming through the air. Well, that's what it sounded like. It sounded like something ripping the, the, the heavens apart. Um, and the, this thing exploded behind us somewhere, and you could feel the whole mountain shake. It was pretty awesome firepower. But uh, the noise was incredible. You couldn't hear anything through all this. And occasionally with the stuff that was close by. And I've got lots of photographs that took many years later, and I couldn't believe the amount of clusters. You could see the actual fire missions where you've got five rounds land. Um, all these craters, it's still pockmarked. Um, all that stuff was you know, affecting everything, really. The ability to think, the ability to move. But then suddenly Zulu company managed to crack it. They charged. They did a classic charge. They screamed their battle cry Zulu. 
led by Clive Dytor, who was their uh, troop commander, who's a great character, and um, was awarded the military cross for this, and, and broke the defense on the ridge. So it went quiet for a while. Meanwhile, X-ray company's battle still going on on the other feature. They're fighting their way up a very up the highest feature, um, and and I believe they took a casualty as well. Uh, but obviously, working their way up through the enemy positions, so all their stuff's flying over us as well. Uh, but I got called up to the Zulu company, and um, and the company commander said to me, uh, "OCs four and six are out of it. It's down to you now. So crack on." So what was a Yankee company task became once again a five troop task. Uh, so I got summoned by the company commander. Um, we were now with Zulu Company on on their position. Um, there were enemy surrendering, um, enemy wounded, enemy dead, um, and Zulu Company was dealing with their own casualties. And I was told that uh, I was the only troop commander left, and so five troop had to crack on with the job. So I briefed the section commanders, and we swung left, and there was a long rocky spine. Uh, running for about two two thousand meters uh, in the direction of Port Stanley, um, we had no idea where the enemy was, but they were there somewhere, of course. And we'd only we had a very short distance when we came under fire from uh, the left flank, basically underneath this cliff face, and it was a proper cliff. It was such a cliff, in fact, that nobody considered actually getting on top of it. Just clear it. We didn't think there'd be any, any enemy up there, so you know it was, it was irrelevant. Um, however, it turned out not to be. Uh, this machine gun opened up on us. It was a straightforward thing. I just said to Corporal Bell and left section, uh, you deal with it. Uh, I think Corporal Siddle was on the right flank. I said, you support him. So Harry moved sort of further around to hook and get, get an angle on it. Dinger turned around to uh, Jock and said, Jock, you deal with it. Uh, Jock apparently put his flag down on a rock, cocked his 66, fired it, and that was the end of the battle. <laughs> he was one cool guy. Uh, that was the first part. Um, Shortly after that, we went past where the mortars were, the mortars we were sent to destroy. And I now know that, you know, it is very easy to overestimate the enemy. In fact, sometimes it's more dangerous to overestimate the enemy than it is to underestimate him. Who puts mortars on a forward slope? Nobody with the slightest intelligence does, but they'd put it in a cleft in the rock where it was actually visible. And uh, that was the last place we'd have looked. We'd have never have found them. So I think my fears about, you know, a disaster were probably well-founded. Anyway, we cleared that position. And then we came under very accurate mortar fire ourselves. And, and this was the confusing thing. We couldn't work out where the hell this stuff was coming from. By this time, um, the weather, of course, had changed and it was snowing. Um, and, and the visibility was dropping as the snowing was getting denser and denser. And we found ourselves in a field of jumbled rock. And some of these rocks were almost the size of garden sheds. You know, there, there was, it was impossible ground to fight over. But the great thing was it was also fantastic cover. And we just happened to be in amongst this stuff when this mortar stuff started landing on us. Uh, initially, it wasn't actually on us. It was down in the valley. I heard the crump, 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 crump. And uh, two minutes later, another crump, 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 crump. And it was getting closer and closer. And then somebody was walking it directly onto us. And this was happening as the visibility was getting less and less and less. So the deduction is pretty obvious to anybody who can work out a simple Rubik's Cube. But we couldn't work that out. I certainly couldn't. And eventually, it was on us. And I, to this day, cannot understand how on earth not one of us got a scratch. But these five-round fire missions were landing in amongst these rocks. Some of them were hitting the cliff above us, and there were shards of rock coming off, you know, e equally lethal. Um, by this time, the forward observation officer, Cact Captain Derek Dalrymple, who's no longer here, um, crawled up to where I was. And the two of us had our binoculars out, sort of searching in the valley. Um, 
wondering where the hell this stuff was coming. I tried to identify its caliber to give some idea of range, where it was from. I still to this day don't know where it came from. But more perplexing was how has it been so accurate? Uh, couldn't work it out. Your brain is like walking in treacle. You, you, you just cannot add two and two and come up with four. It's, it is fear, there's no question about that. And in a kind of panicky moment, the only thing that could occur to me was just get the hell out of here. So after a particular salvo landed, I just screamed at the top of my voice, after the next salvo, get up and run. And that's what happened. Five rounds landed. We all got up and we sprinted. The guys at the rear overtook the guys at the front. All tactics went out the window. There was no spacing. We just ran off that um, rock field. And the firing stopped. Uh, we patrol on down the mountain. By now, it's starting to go quiet. And then suddenly, I heard a crack, 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 and contact started again. Um, and it was Corporal Siddle, who was now the point section commander. And he'd bumped into the MFC party that had been bringing down fire on us. And we now know that he must have been right above us on that cliff. And that was a very brave thing to do. And that guy had obviously stayed there, more or less calling fire on himself, uh, until he realized, you know, he's got to get out of here. And he, he left it just a bit too late. Uh, so, so Harry killed the officer, uh, very wounded the sergeant, and the private just wrapped. Um, and at that point, it all went silent. And now the snow was very heavy. And I can see that scene. I can see the dead officer, and I can see the wounded sergeant. Um, in the original brigade orders, we were told once we've taken two sisters, we will then go on and attack Mount Tumbledown, the next feature. I remember at the time thinking that's a bit ambitious, but uh, I think the brigadier put that in as a kind of a codicil, you know, if you do happen to do well on two sisters and they fold, we'll keep going sort of thing. Um, at this point, I'd heard nothing to the contrary. So I was thinking, right, you know, shortly we're going to start another attack. Uh, and this sergeant knows where the minefields are. This guy knows where all the obstacles are. And that's the reason for not killing him. And at no point did I think of Geneva Convention or humanity or anything of that nature. It was just simply a case of expediency. And I've said this to many, many people I've lectured to on this point about how war changes you and how your mentality is affected by this. And I'm a rational bloke, a civilized person. I wouldn't dream of hurting anybody without serious provocation or defense. But in this instance, and I can't speak for the rest of the troop, and I don't know, we've never discussed any of this stuff, so I've got no idea what anybody else felt. But at that point, I was so savage, having just killed four of our own people just literally the night before because of these bastards. Uh, all I want to do is kill them. But we didn't. And that was it. Shortly after that, uh, the recall for reorg came through the radio. So we withdrew back up to the top of the mountain where the unit was now going into reorganization. The enemy had finally uh, failed or collapsed, if you like, surrendered. Uh, and I remember sitting on top of that feature, looking at the sun coming up and thinking to myself, I'm never going to be upset by anything ever again in life. You know, nothing is ever going to be remotely like that. Because I thought just uh, 18 hours previously, we'd all watch the sun go down when we were in the assembly area doing the battle procedure. And uh, nobody said anything, but I'm sure we were all thinking the same thing. You know, will I see that sun again? Mm -hmm. And for some of us, four of us, of course, didn't. We lost four more guys in that battle. How, how were they killed, Andy, if that, if that isn't too obvious a question or an answer? Well, the answer is I don't know. Um, in the case of Blue Novak, there was a mystery involved. Um, I'd been back twice, and I've spoken to people that were actually where he was originally buried, where they all were when they were Kazavaked off the battlefield, or removed, rather. A place called the Stancia Farm. Uh, there was shallow graves dug there initially. Then they were moved back to Teal Inlet. There was a more permanent solution there. And then finally, the decision was made by the families for the first time in the history of the British military 
uh, they were given the option to repatriate the bodies if they wanted, because prior to this war, uh, men were buried where they fell, which is why so many are in Flanders and all over the world, which is why we have the War Grace Commission. Um, and I spoke to that guy and he said, uh, nobody could find any injuries to his body. No, we don't know how he died. Was it a heart attack? I God knows what, it could have been shock, the shells landing next by. We, we know now, of course, things like traumatic brain injury are caused by concussions from explosions, IEDs in Northern Ireland, IEDs in Iraq and Afghanistan and so on. They might not kill you, but they can certainly do an awful lot of damage. Um, so the answer is, I don't know. And as for the other guys, neither do I know about that. And the funny thing about this is, you know, and maybe it's not funny, we're not ghouls. And when it's your profession, you have a very clear view about this stuff. When it's not your profession, the, the wannabes, the, uh, the limp-wristed creatures that play games and think they're soldiers, they have a very different view to all this. And uh, from a soldier's point of view, it's not ghoulish. You don't want to see dead bodies. You don't want to know what's happened to them. Unfortunately, sometimes you can't avoid it. You know, in the worst cases, you're covered in it. But uh, bottom line is, you don't want to know. So I don't know, mate. Yeah. And this scene on, on that mountain top or mountain sides, it must have just been, well, was it all torn up? Was it, is it, I mean, smoking? It and... Yeah, it was a battlefield. Funny enough, we had a fire, as you know, here yesterday on a hill about a mile away. And I climbed on the roof to take some pictures and eventually I went up there and took some film and I was, and I was doing the touristy bit, I suppose. But um, at last light last night, uh, the blue lights were on top of the hill and they're still trying to put the fires out. They were everywhere. And when I saw that, I thought instantly of two sisters. Mm -hmm. I thought that's exactly a different scenario, of course, in the 40s here, late high 30s, um, exact opposite down there. But there was smoke from all the, uh, the shells that had landed. Um, there were people being buried up there, the enemy, by their own comrades that survived. There was prisoners sat in dejected huddle groups. There was clearance patrols going out that were not sympathetic, let's put it that way. Um, there was a general thousand-yard stare, probably the best way to put it. And again, that's a huge sweeping generalization. I didn't go around looking at every single face in 4-5. Um, we came across enemy rations. We occupied their positions because we didn't have our kit again. Once again, here we are on sub-zero temperatures without even our sleeping bags. Uh, we occupied their positions and we found that the officers had their own rations, which, which included cigarettes and, and a little bottle of whiskey called Breeders' Choice. Uh, the lads just got central feeding, you know, rubbish knocked up on a central cooker. Mm. So um, completely different standards to the way we operate. All of our officers have no perks whatsoever. You know, you live like the lads, you live with them, cheek by jowl, exactly the same conditions and everything else. That's proper leadership. Um, and, that's why the enemy failed. They hadn't got leadership. And I'm guessing all their hygiene and their toilet procedures. Atrocious. Atrocious. Um, just to jump forward a little bit, two days later, um, yeah, it was yeah, that's right. We were on the way in to attack Sapper Hill. That's right. The day after this battle, Scots Guards took Tumbledown and the Gurkhas took William. Uh, the Battle of Tumbledown was equally horrific. Uh, William fell without a shot being fired, much to the chagrin of the poor Gurkhas who'd been sharpening their cookeries for months and uh, never got a chance to cut anybody up. <laughs> um, we got to Sapper Hill. Uh, before we put that attack in, I was telling you about earlier on my friend who was doing his first troop attack. 
uh, and the enemy surrendered and that was it and that was a, a massive scramble to get into Stanley and the Paris of course wanted the best beds and they were the first in and all that sort of nonsense we were kept out for two days um, so we were we went firm on Sapper Hill on the 14th of May the day they surrendered and the Antarctic winter broke on that day proper blizzard came in we're Arctic troops so we're used to it but thank God they'd erected some kind of crude shelter using cavern type, not proper caves, but sort of overhanging rocks and what have you, with a lot of heavy duty canvas. And it seemed to be sort of tailor-made. It was a damn sight better than a bivy. So I remember crawling into this with the troop and I remember there were mattresses in there. And I can see that scene now of, we, we, we'd been resupplied. Fortunately, we had our kit now and we had, our, we had rations and we had hexamine. <laughs> it was like a holiday and uh, no sentries i thought nobody gave us any orders i just said they've surrendered have they surrendered there was a lot of speculation has the air force been told and all this sort of thing um uh, sorry you know bloody blizzard conditions outside nobody's going out that so come on in everybody in right putting our scran on all these little hexamine cookers going it was it was a really it's a very moving scene for me because i as i as i was eating my chicken curry uh, along with everything else in the ration pack uh, i was speculating on that this is probably the last night i'll be in the field with my troop I was assuming we'd be on the ship tomorrow and gone sort of thing. You know, it was a bit naive, that was. But um, in the morning when we came out, and it was a beautiful winter's morning, we were covered in shit. These evil twats had shat everywhere. And that was nothing compared to what was in Stanley. In Stanley, they'd opened every filing cabinet, every drawer, every locker, deliberately crapped everywhere. They had to, the, the cleanup for Stanley was a major operation, uh, which took weeks and weeks and weeks. And they had to literally hose the entire town down. That's how filthy these people were. Mm. Real peasants. Yes. Well, let's talk talk about them, Andy, if we may. What because you you hear these, you know, you I've heard several stories. Um, I've heard that some of the troops down there were incredibly professional. They were like what we'd call special forces. I've heard to the other end of the well, to the other extreme. That, that some of them were barely like teenage, when I mean teenage, I'm talking like 15, 16. And then, then I've had, I think Russ, when he was on the podcast, said they weren't that young. Um, and I mean, they, a lot of them were conscripts, right? It, yeah, what you had was approximately 15,000 troops based in Stanley or the mountains around there. Um, I couldn't give you accurate figures for Goose Green, but I think after the BBC World Service announced the attack, uh, they were beefed up to around about 2,000. Um, on West Falkland, there were small forces, which the SAS um, dealt with. Um, so in total, I would say less than 20,000 probably, but certainly the, the main concentration, about 15,000. Now, of that lot that I know of, you've got a mixed bag. Um, the officers were very much in what you might call the least informed civilian's view of an officer, i.e. the type that's gorgeously dressed, has perfect privileges, conducts himself beautifully and all that sort of stuff. We should never forget that one of the main reasons this war started was because they had been murdering their own young people in Argentina and about 2000 young males had vanished mm -hmm. and the mothers had got together and the mothers were now defying the hunter and that's how it all began. And in order to deflect the attention of the nation from themselves, they decided to go and attack what they call the Malvinas. So that's the nature of the person you're dealing with. One of them who was taken at South Georgia was wanted by Amnesty International for international crimes, war crimes, right? Totally evil people. 
No concern for anybody whatsoever. Now, let me just finish this because I'm on a roll here, mate. I'll get your question in a minute. I'm sorry I'm getting a bit aggressive here because talking about this brings us out. Go for it. This is a PTSD thing, by the way. Mm. Um, we had huge respect for the Air Force. Very professional pilots, very brave guys. No problems with them whatsoever. There were rumors. I didn't physically see it myself, but there were stories of machine gunners on Two Sisters and I believe Mount Longdon who had been shot in the legs by their own officers to stop them running away. The only officer I saw on the mountain or heard of was that one we killed, the MFC. The rest had vanished. Now, amongst the senior NCO cadre, they were professional men. They were career uh, soldiers. Um, making comparisons with British Special Forces is not relevant. They're nowhere near our Special Forces in any sense. Um, but they, do, they did have what they call Special Forces who carried out that kind of a role. Um, but there was also a significant number of young people who were genuine conscripts who'd literally been taken off the streets of Buenos Aires. And some of them thought they were actually on the border with Chile because they were also in conflict with Chile at that same time. A bit like our Northern Ireland situation, although no comparison really. Um, and didn't actually know they were on the Malvinas, as they called it. So um, the flow of information down the chain of command was non-existent. The uh, capabilities of the troops were very varied. The officer class were the worst type, um, but they also had some very, very professional uh, airmen. As for the seamen, of course, as we know perfectly well, after the Belgrano was sunk, that was the end of the uh, Argentine Navy. They all scuttled back to port and they claimed they had some submarines and some spy trawlers keeping an eye on us. And that's possibly true, um, but there was no conflict. Gosh. And by the way, the ratio was three to one. Three of them to one of us. Mm. Britain's last colonial war. Fought and putted with the SLR. Still a favourite bang stick. Yes. <laughs> it's a, I think it's a favourite of anyone that fires that, that weapon. Do you, <laughs> again, as a bit of an aside, do you, do you think the outcome would have been different if you'd had the SA-80? Well, I think the SA-80 now is a superb weapon. I've got no personal experience of it. I was in 40 Commando when it was brought in. Um, like most people, <laughs> by making that comparison, we were very much against the whole thing because naturally it had teething problems. Um, when I was training the, uh, the Army senior NCOs at Brecon, uh, what was a brilliant job, two years at the NCOs tactical wing in Daring Lions camp. Um, we had a visit from a young chap from, I think it's called Radway Green, where they do all this clever stuff uh, and and his speciality was the bayonet and I remember being uh, asked to sort of host him so I took him into the bar and I said to this guy he was a proper professor type he was about 23 thick glasses hair all over you know I said um so I asked him the classic question so if, if you'd do it again would you do it any differently and he said well actually funny you should say that he said there is something I'm not happy about I said all ah, right good because I knew what its faults were so I said what is it then he said well in the original spec what I wanted was if you got lost somewhere and you got a piece that you got your pull through and tied it to the middle of the bed, I went stop there. Right? It was magnetized. It would point north. He said, exactly. <laughs> oh, <dear. laughs> Look, there's only one function for a bayonet is to kill people, right? <laughs> we don't need a bloody compass and all the other Rambo kit you're sticking on the damn thing. I said, the reality is this. When we're on the bun line up there on Sennybridge on B range and the guys are trying to get down behind that SUSAT to give them as much cover as possible, the bayonet release catch hits the ground. The first round twists it and the second round takes it off down the range. I said, so much for your bloody bayonet, mate. 
that was the end of that discussion. So that was exactly how I felt about the SA-80. But guys who've used it for real in contact say it's a brilliant bit of weapon now. So there you go. Yeah. Would it have been any better? But the only thing is, of course, you know, we used to count our rounds. We didn't have an automatic capability. We had the GPMG and we also had the LMG, an excellent weapon. They're a great combination because, as you know, the GPMG is an area weapon and the LMG was very much a point weapon. So no matter what cover the enemy was behind, you know, you knew you could get to him eventually. Uh, and our Sergeant Major, uh, Mr. Meekin, George Meekin, who was a character that nobody in that unit will ever forget, um, he carried the LMG alongside me on the Yom. And I remember the day we were going down to Teal, we'd all we'd done an extra patrol while the unit was resting up. Five troop did a clearance patrol of about 20 miles. We were knackered. And we did the same thing the following day. And as we were moving towards Teal, and I must have been flagging, the Sergeant Major had seen it. He suddenly appeared beside me. And I can see him now. He had his pipe. He had all the kit. He had his LMG and an orgy patrol pack full of magazines. Staggering weight. And he just went, get in step, young sir. And I got in step with him and we marched. We literally marched. <laughs> and he picked up the pace. It was brilliant. But yeah, great, great weapons. Um, but, you know, when you look at the modern stuff, you look at the, the grenade chuck or whatever they call it. The, the Russians used to call it an AG-19, I think, 40 mil grenade. Um, you know, I carried an M203 in, in Cross McGlen, which had a 40 mil capacity, which was, I never got to fire it, but um, bloody bit of, good bit of kit. Now, I, I think the course come a long way weapon-wise. It's far, far better than what we had. But, you know, you make do with what you got. When we've got space cadet commandos, you know, they'll be issued with lasers or something that's um, equally effective. I don't think anybody feels they haven't got the right weapon. I think close up in, in the battle you've just described to us, the S the, and guys, we're saying S80 here because that was what it was when we left. It's I know it's changed names now, but in the battle you've just described, Andy, the, the lightweight ammunition, i.e. you can carry a lot more of it, and the accuracy over a short uh, range of the SA, which was which was, you know, um as good as you need it to be i think that weapon would, would have been good and and getting around the crags it's the slr it, it was the accuracy at long range was the well just the beauty of that of, of that rifle it's, it's an interesting debate this our own chairman john bailey who was a company commander major bailey in uh in lima company i believe in 4-2 in iraq um is adamant that the 5.56 is every bit as lethal as the 7.62, if not more so. And he, he went on to describe this in a conversation we had, and I couldn't fault him, to be honest. You know, I, I'm one of the old school that's not died in the wool, but I'm quite prepared to, to move on. Um, but I think the point I was going to make is I'm losing the thread here now. Uh, <laughs> well, I can maybe chip in because I'm, one, I'm probably one of the few fortunate people, Andy, that got to fire both. Yep, because I, I was a ship's marine, and so I yep. trained on the SA80, and then I went to the SLR while, while, and, and the nine millimeter while I was on ship. Yeah, and well, there you go. You see, you need a nine millimeter because of confined space. The SLR was no good in that, far too long. Exactly right. That's one big advantage of it. But there was another one I want to say. Oh yeah, this is the point I want to make. Right, when I had eight troop and Camacho Company, we had no Gore-Tex. When we used to patrol up and down the peninsula there, and and, and way outside the base. Uh, which I don't think you can do anymore now. Yeah, we just got wet. Um, when we were in mountain training, we just got wet. When we were in the Falklands, we just got wet. Then they brought the Gore-Tex in. Now, what a brilliant bit of kit Gore-Tex is. And I got stranded on Aram once in a brigade exercise, Purple Warrior something or other, uh, for 24 hours. A helicopter couldn't pick me up, and I was literally living off my fighting order. And uh, had I not been in Gore-Tex, 
I'm not saying I would have gone down with hypothermia, but it would have changed the situation somewhat. Now, the point I'm making is, were we better Marines because we didn't have that kit? I, I looked at somebody not long ago, about 300 meters away, and I, I just did that. I went, how the hell did we hit a target at 300 meters with an iron sight? I mean, I couldn't believe it. I thought, you know, we used to do the annual personal weapons test. You know, you were regularly dropping tiles at 300 meters. Wouldn't dream of doing that with uh, today with my capabilities obviously being older. There's another factor, but bottom line is I thought, wow, I can see clearly now how I've lost something that I used to have. We were superb people in every sense. So we could handle the weather. Now I'm not saying guys with Gore-Tex can't handle it. And there's no comparison between putting up the rain and the snow and having to put up with the heat, the dreadful heat and the lack of water and the dust and everything else in the Middle East. I mean, that's a, all, all environments are challenging. And often people say the jungle's the worst. In some ways, I believe that. But that environment and having to fight in it, that's something else. So, you know, I mean, I think the bottom line is, mate, it, making comparisons is like looking at PTSD. When I started this charity, I did a kind of fairly amateurish research and wrote a paper on the comparisons between the First World War and today. And I came to a conclusion that there is no point in making comparisons because young men in the trenches in 1914 had a completely different outlook on life and a totally different upbringing to what we've got today. So it's really only relative to you in your time. Uh, and if you've had the great advantage of seeing both types of weapon system, you can obviously make the comparisons. But um, once you're in a certain period of time, that's all that's relative to you. And that's all you can really compare it to. So, so I think the bottom line is it doesn't matter whether you've got Gore-Tex or you haven't. You, know, you will do what you have to do and, and you'll cope accordingly. Doesn't make you a better soldier to have it or not have it. That's my conclusion. No, the only exclusion to that rule, Andy, is a lightsaber. If you can get a lightsaber, <laughs> you're doing all right. <laughs> I, but, yeah, you see, I'm a bit too old to really appreciate that, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah, Darth Vader was quite a character, wasn't he? But um... my, my, my boy will put you right on that, mate. Don't worry. <laughs> I'm um, more a Star Trek man. <laughs> but back to um, back to your campaign then so after two sisters were you tasked with an another mountain i'm sorry i can't remember the the yeah originally we were going to attack tumble down then that 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 fell over naturally that unfortunately right. thank thank goodness the scots guards did that and then the day after that on the 14th of uh, may sorry june i beg your pardon not may 14th of june um we were basically it was a crash move we were ordered we're taking sapper hill and uh, we actually fell in on a kind of a track once again without our kit and sort of non-tactically speed marched off the feature. We didn't go very far before we slowed right down. I wasn't, the, this is the first time we weren't the point troop. I think six troop were a point at this point uh, and they were going to lead the attack onto Sapper Hill. We had no recce, we had no knowledge, no intelligence, no idea what was up there. It was just a case of get up there and deal with it now. Um, it, was, it was pretty frightening. And then unfortunately, roughly at the point where we were in the low ground uh, on a track because we identified minefields either side of the track, um, the word came through the enemy had surrendered. And, and so we, we made safe and, uh, and just marched up to Sapper Hill. By the time we got there, I think elements of 40 Commando had been up there. There were some others as well. There was a big race to get the, uh, the passive night goggles, which we now knew they had and they didn't know how to use. So in a recce troop, we're desperately looking for gizzards, things like that. I think there was one guy up there I think he, he took on sort of most of three commander brigade, um, very sensibly surrendered. And that was it. That was the end of the war for us. It was another two to three weeks before we actually left the island and started coming home. Um, 
you know, a big anticlimax. And of course, rumor control took charge of all sorts of stories about us staying there to garrison it and things of that nature. But uh, um, it was over. At which point did the infamous four five yomp take place? Then was that was that between two sisters and Stanley? No, it's the whole island, mate. Then- you need to go back and look at your own podcast. I've just described that to you. The yomp began in San Carlos on the west side of the island, and it ended at Port Stanley. We yomped the whole distance. And uh-huh. people have various accounts of the distance we actually marched. I can tell you categorically that Five Troop marched further than anybody else, because not only we do we, did we do the yomp, we also did a lot of clearance patrolling as well. And um, so, we, you know, I, I've noticed actually bothered to measure it accurately. It won't be more than 100 miles, but um, it, was, it, was a, it was 100 very tough miles. Very tough. Wow. Took about five days, the, the, the actual famous yomp. But, you know, that's just a means of transport. It was, it was forgotten as soon as we got to Mount Kent. You know, we're here to do the job now. Let's get on with it. Yeah. Moving forward then, what you went sailing. You bought a yacht, Andy. Was that when you realised things weren't, weren't right, but you hadn't realised you had PTSD? Well, I'll put it into context very quickly. Um, straight after we got back, well, of course, I was already a mess. I, I realized this on the ship as we were coming back up through the South Atlantic. Um, the reception at home exacerbated the problem. Uh, and I went into what I call a denial phase. It was just shut off and forgotten about. Um, a few years later, I started behaving bizarrely. And I, I was aware of it, but I wasn't able to do anything about it. I just shut it off and ignored it. Um, I think that was the beginning of wrecking my marriage. Uh, that led to a period of um, a dark period where uh, I was I was becoming, I suppose, what everybody hopes to be as a soldier, but what every real soldier knows you can't be. That is to say, psychotic, uh, focusing on purely the job and nothing else, nothing outside of it. So family life falling over, no, no contact with um, family very much. And my own family, two little daughters becoming distant, I think. Um, trying to be, you know, what I was, but but really failing massively, I think, except for that one area of being a soldier. I spent a lot of time trying to get into special forces. I got the door sh- shut in, in my face in three different directions. That took a couple of years. Uh, finally accepted that, you know, you're not going to go down that road. Um, I look back now and I think the reason the main motivation was to prove to myself I was actually a good soldier, which is silly because I knew I was, but, you know, I wasn't thinking rationally anymore. I was definitely on a different uh, route to the one I'd been on previously. Uh, my fourth tour in South Omar, I got very close to the edge and almost went over it. That's another long podcast. Maybe you want to be careful about that kind of stuff in all line today with all the rubbish that the politicians and the bloody lawyers are doing, mm. and especially Sinn Féin, who are now looking like taking over in, in Ireland generally. So I don't want to say too much publicly about that, but um, that was where I came very close. And the powers that be, I think, were starting to realise and eventually, when I went to take over a rifle company in 42 Commando, I was given the headquarter company instead, uh, which was a wise decision, the right decision, by a well-known commanding officer who eventually ended up in the Middle East and set up his own organization. And um, it was a very happy time, and I left on a high. It was a great unit. They've all been great units. I've been in all of them, and they were all great. But um, I was lost, completely lost. So, yeah, I'd bought this yacht. About five years before I left the Corps, I was still at Limston when I was training the officers when I bought that. And I'd found a new love in my life, Shirley. And uh, thank goodness she's the woman she is. 
and, and she agreed to live with me on this thing and we started living on, on the boat. So we had five years of training in the English Channel, basically. We never got out the channel. And in 96, I sailed out of Plymouth late in the summer, having left 4-2 Commando in February in Norway. So it took me six months to actually get out. And that was because I was leaving, not because I was going on a nice long extended holiday. Um, I had a gratuity which paid off the mortgage on the boat and, and left a bit of money and I had a small pension. That was it. And off we went. I was heading for the Caribbean, but officers and maps, I ended up in the Mediterranean, which is where I am now. Uh, lived on the boat for 18 years, uh, mostly in isolation. And I think that was a big contributing factor to getting to where I am today. Mm. Um, but in 89, um, I swam south from Budley Salterton with the intention of not stopping and uh, very came close to the end, very close. So uh, to go from that point, the lowest point of my life, the second time in my life I've been at the absolute lowest point uh, to where I am today is a huge transition. Uh, so that, anyway, that in a nutshell is basically the, the, the journey I've been traveling. Um, in 2012, I went back to 4-5 and I gave a presentation to the unit on my war and its uh, consequences. And that night in the officers' mess, there were a queue of young officers wanting to talk to me about their experiences in Iraq and Afghanistan. And that's when I realized I could help these guys. And I gave up my aspirations for running a maritime security empire uh, and switched to what I'm doing today. Um, and that was the birth of the Mountain Way. So during this time when you were at sea, Andy, were, were you... You know, were, were you experiencing depression or anxiety? Were, were you drinking? Were, were, how was your time? Or were you maybe enjoying yourself? I've been very lucky. Um, and I do mean lucky. I take no credit for this because uh, I, I wish no reflection on anybody that's gone in a different direction. I now know about PTSD enough to know that you have to find a solution. And even if you're not thinking about it, you will find a solution of some sort. For a lot of guys, unfortunately, it's the wrong sort of solution. And they do fall into heavy drinking uh, or, or other substances that, you know, relieve the nightmares and the, the sheer horror of just being awake, being alive. They've all got big sleep problems. Um, I had a very big sleep problem. For years, I woke up at 10 past three in the morning every single night. And it was only a couple of years ago, talking to one of those Marines who was down there with me, I'd not spoken to since 1982, that he said he had the same problem. Slightly different time, but the same thing. We worked it out. It was a time difference to where we currently are and where the Falklands is. Now, how the brain does that, I've got no idea. But at 10 past three in the morning, which equated to roughly the time we, I dropped the hammer on the blue on blue, um, I'd be wide awake regardless of when I'd been to sleep. And that was it. I'd get up and go for a walk all night or whatever. Um, I'm lucky because of the upbringing I've had. Uh, I was in two boarding schools, one in England, one in Ireland. They were very brutal by today's standards. Back then, they weren't seen as brutal. It was just normal upbringing. But I experienced the whole range of the negative side, if you like. I think that's had a, a big impression, or rather, it's, it's given me a basis. And very much like sitting on the mountain after the battle and saying to myself, I'm never going to be upset again, which I've, I've forgotten thousands of times. But it's still, a, it's, it's still a benchmark that gets you back to you know, reality. This is how bad life can be, sort of thing. Um, that's helped me enormously. So I never had to fall back on those kind of um, supports, if you like, you know, non-prescribed non supports. And I put it this way because I don't want to say about drug addiction and things like that because that implies that you're some sort of weak character. You're not. You're a person that's been seriously damaged and you're trying to find a way out of it. And the reason you don't go sick and the reason I didn't go sick is you're too ashamed. You've got all your limbs as I have. You've got your faculties. You've got a family. And I'm not talking about you personally, Chris. I'm talking about us 
people in the same category. We've got all of this, and you look at guys who've just been to Headley Court and they've lost three limbs or even four limbs, and they're climbing mountains and rowing the Atlantic and things like this. You know, it makes you feel ashamed. Uh, and and soldiers, particularly, you know, have this inner pride, which is an essential part of your makeup. It's, it's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's a very good can thing. I, can I That's damaged. Say, can I say something? This is for the record, Andy. Right. Mm. This is for the academic record, and I don't know how it fits in, but. I'm going to say here and now, those guys that had their legs blown off in Afghanistan or lose a limb, obviously horrendous, obviously unanticipated, must have such a shock on their families, right? Their loved ones, their own, you know, psyche. But for people who want to understand, truly want to understand PTSD and what it's about, I would just suggest that people like myself, we, we equally went through what I've just described, but we, we did it as defenseless toddlers. Um, because I'm picking up, Andy, on something that we talked about yesterday in our phone chat, when you mentioned that a lot of people with PTSD might have had it from childhood mm, which is yeah. not your usual take because the mainstream kind of take is you're a soldier or you're a big brave guy you go to war you experience something horrific you get ptsd and and i've been trying to do a, a bit of work around suggesting well a lot of us joined the military because we were damaged yeah absolutely because we needed to prove something yeah because we'd never known you know the the cliche love as a child yes um that's not a cliche by the way that's a very important element well, well yeah yeah i mean that as in that you yeah. know we, we didn't have that typical happy families that yes that, that, that some people are very lucky to endure and that's right the, the, re the reason i'm saying this is there's so much stigma around yes. addiction addiction right yeah, okay. Men mental health in general, but it, let's just talk about addiction. And what I wish people would, well, I don't wish any, I don't, it's not my fight, but what it would be great if people could understand is when you join the military, you do it as an adult, you volunteer, you get a cracking job with a massively well paid wage, you get to wear a prestigious green berry in our case. And yes, you might have to go to war. Do you mind going to war? No, it's the other way around. You wouldn't not want to be the guy that went to war, right? It's all your choice, right? You end up losing a leg. You suddenly become, I'm going to say it, like a massive war hero. And you have money thrown at you. You have a claim thrown at you. You have public speaking. You have this, right? And let's be completely honest, uh, these wars in recent times, I'm, I think people know what I'm getting at, it, 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 quite, quite dubious. Whereas you take that little damaged toddler, he didn't ask for that abuse. He didn't be asked, you know, in some kids' cases, to be knocked into the middle of next week anytime he... He said something that one of his parents didn't, you know, couldn't handle. 
Um, in the case of the, 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 the boys' schools, the, the amount of abuse that must go on there from such a, a, a young age is, 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 is just awful. And yet, here's the thing, when one of those toddlers manifests that their, their PTSD manifests as drug addiction as a coping strategy, in our society, they're scum. I'm, I'm just saying, I'm just generalizing, right? I know, I know things are changing, but traditionally, they're a smackhead, they're a crackhead, they're an addict, you know, I'll still hear, one of, my, one of my bugs about the AA and NA system is that they usually stigmatizing labels on people that are traumatized, that didn't ask for their trauma, didn't ask to have the shit beaten out of them, right? You know, it, it, we're talking children, right? Mm. Um, and you were the first person, Andy, that, that I've met that, like me, suggests that, no, actually, your childhood has quite an effect on your post-service outcome. So, sorry, I've, got, I've gone kind of into one, but these are the things that, we, you know, we need to be talking about. Um, I agree. Absolutely, Chris. Uh, they are stigmas. They are taboos still. Suicide is less of a taboo than it used to be, but it's still a big taboo in many places. Um, child abuse and all the rest of it. It's almost as if we've reached overload, to be honest. And I think that's an inevitable part of what we've got at the moment, because, you know, thanks to the Internet now, we are an international voice. Um, I think this is the most significant invention of mankind. Wouldn't have happened without flight or penicillin, but, you know, we can now talk globally. Uh, but the, the downside is that we know too much, far too much information. And I think that's probably one of the reasons that, I mean, it's a bit like looking at charities on TV, you know, demanding 10 quid a week for this and 10 quid a week for that and all the rest of it. You can get to a point thinking, oh, I've had enough of it. It's just too much. And I've, I've been in the charity world. I'm well aware of all this. And, and you know, it's, it's a constant battle for me to sort of try and find a way of helping our people and getting the money without actually, you know, going down the same road of offending people and adding to their own stresses. But one thing I can say is from my own experience, and I've been doing this since 2012, is that most of the people I help who've tried every other avenue, because we're outside of the mainstream, so therefore we're, we're not the most popular first choice for obvious reasons, makes complete sense. But when they finally come to me and finally get to meet me and talk to me and unload their stuff and, and feel confident and comfortable, that's when the childhood stuff starts to come out. And it happens in, this is a swag scientific wild ass guess about 75 percent of the time most people i've helped have got problems that began in childhood i mean just to give you one example one of the people i helped his mother was irish um if she'd given birth illegitimately to that child in ireland it would have been taken off her she would have ended up working in some quasi nunnery if you like probably for the rest of her life it was unbelievable what was being done over there so she moved to scotland where she had a sister she gave the baby to her sister the sister was a pretty evil woman and just beat the child as a convenient sort of whipping boy. Um, he grew up thinking that the woman who's his mother was his mother was actually his aunt. And the quasi sisters he had were in fact his um, cousins. And it was the sisters that looked after him. Uh, and the, some of those stories are horrendous, you know, bringing him blankets and food because he was made to sleep in a park in Glasgow, mm -hmm. uh, not even allowed in the house. This is how he was brought up and he joined the army to find that family. Of course, when things went wrong in the family, he was then rejected from that one too, medically discharged, kicked out, goodbye, not interested in your PTSD, bugger off. 
two rejections, major rejections. That took a lot of sorting out. When he finally got to me on the program, he was like a limpet. I couldn't get him off me. You know, he's in love with me. And he's a friend, you know, and I understand that feeling and I reciprocate to, to a certain degree. But, you know, the personal touch is what swings this. And, and unfortunately, the standard methods can't get personal. They just can't afford to do that. So this is what's lacking. And I think you're quite right, Chris. An awful lot of people join the armed forces purely to find that family that they never had. Yeah, I'm just making a note here, Andy, because um, do you want to just say the name of your organisation so we can all... The Mountain Way. And if you want to find it online, it's mountainway.org. Yeah. Very simple. We've got a website that we're in the process of rebuilding. It's a bit amateurish at the moment, uh, but I kind of like that, actually. I think it yeah. says a lot about us. <laughs> we'll, put, we'll put a link to you below, certainly um, but, but below the video. Thank you. That would be helpful, yeah. But yes, you touched on a good point. And the other thing we need to remember is all the time that you're in the military, there's two things going on there. One, you're not getting pushed at all to kind of explore your, the inner workings of your mind or history or culture or, you know, sociology, psychology, how, how, how this whole goddamn show works. Because, well, you know, your, your, your job's to play football in the morning, you know, or go for a run do a bit of weapons training in the afternoon and hopefully get home by three o'clock so you can go out on your mountain bike. That, that's, <laughs> that's the military, right? And of course, you know, you, when you're on exercise, your mind is full on, on exercise. So you, you could have 22 years of literally not developing the skills that, that Andy and I have had to develop to, to get over trauma, right? In addition, you've got that umbrella, haven't you, in the military, that it does, you know, as long as you can hold a, a, a rifle and say, yes, sir, you're completely taken care of from your medical to your, to your salary, to your holidays, you know, all, all this kind of thing. And when you come out at the end of your term, however long it might be, it's not like that. You're facing the reality of, of, civvy street but it's fine for your mates because they've all done it since school they you know they know how to do this civvy street thing but as a serviceman you're a bit kind of lost and then once you start maybe hitting the bottle to to deal with your stress then you start to you know your marriage starts to go on the rocks and and then and, and then this this is just more rejection and the whole thing just starts to kind of horribly snowball and the next thing you know all of this trauma from from your childhood that you've never dealt with because you've you've been in this 22 year kind of mind warp almost and i don't mean this obviously don't mean this disrespectfully um suddenly all that is now now <laughs> dumped on you here this is kind of how i i sort of experienced it um and what you said there about your 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 client who's become your friend clinging you to you like a limpet it's because some of the things guys like us say andy they've just never heard before mm, and yet that's true and yet they're quite simple philosophies that that make make total sense yeah uh, absolutely right chris um that's the great thing about you know having experiences you can come out the other side i mean we're guided by a clinical psychologist, Pat Guire, who's a young progressive guy who practices what's called positive psychology. It's very simple stuff. 
three things, meditation, guided reflection, and cognitive reframing, or to put it in our terms, positive thinking. Now, those words sound like cliches because they use so much these days. The, the danger of that approach is that people write it off. Um, if you think about the way acupuncture was seen, say, 30, 40 years ago, you know, it, it was it was kind of laughed at a little bit. Now it's mainstream treatment. It, it's recommended by the NHS. Um, the same will apply to eventually to meditation. It's a very important element of life. I think the biggest stress problem we're under in Britain today, if Western world is stress, and it comes in so many different forms, we're talking about perhaps the extreme elements of stress uh, through trauma. Um, and, you know, uh, somebody involved in a car accident, for example, goes through a very traumatic experience, will no doubt have some PTSD symptoms, even full-blown PTSD. But I like to use the term, which I haven't seen officially, but I'm using now, called complex military PTSD, because I want to differentiate between those people who have had that kind of trauma and us. You know, we've been through much, much more. And it isn't just the combination of events, because it could be just one single event. It's the complexity of what you're dealing with. When you're a soldier, you have to think about the moral side as well. And of course, we're guided along those lines, those very simple lines, the Geneva Convention, for example, or when we're in Northern Ireland, the yellow card and so on. You know, it's not as, not as free for all. We all know that. But nonetheless, um, the guys I'm helping today who come from the younger generation who serve in the Middle East all want to talk about the morality of why we ended up killing women and children in Iraq. What, what do we do this for? What was the reason we were there? And so on. And then it gets very dark. You get into the politics and the reasons behind it and so on. Um, but that's what they need. They need to understand that. And then once they've got that clear view in their mind, that, that their view, not mine, there's no doctrine involved here, um, they then can rationalize because we can't change events. What we can do is change our view of them. And that's really what the positive thinking is about. It's not just looking for the positives and the negatives. I mean, that, again, that, you're hearing that phrase more and more often. That's very much a part of it. But really, it's much more than that. And to do that, you've got to develop your own philosophies. In other words, you can put a positive spin on death once you've developed a philosophy that works for you. And this is what I learned sitting on that boat for 18 years. I was in complete isolation for about 12 of those years. No phone, no contact, no computer, nothing. Just my wife, the dog, and me. And eventually a son came along, and that's what changed our life a bit. We had to start getting back into the real world again. But for that period of time, while I was sat on a beach, stark naked, staring at my feet, and writing words in the sand like guilt, horror, shame, paranoia, hypervigilance, hypersensitivity, and so on and so forth. And then the subsets that came down from that, I started to realize how big this problem was. Because I'd never gone sick and I'd never heard the phrase PTSD. I didn't know what I was living with. I just knew it was bloody awful. Um, but I was, I'd gone through that uh, close attempt at suicide and that was the turnaround point. And for me, there was no looking back. So I just followed my nose very much like I do most things in my life. There's no plan involved here. I just wake up in the morning and get on with it. Mm -hmm. And um, this is how I got to that conclusion that really, you know, common sense and logic and, and honesty, transparent, unvarnished honesty, simple, plain honesty. When I told that client what I thought about his mother, and I spelt it out in four letters, he wasn't shocked. He'd never heard that before. And he needed to hear that from somebody that he respected. So I could say, look, my honest opinion is that woman is a whatever. Mm. And that helped him enormously because then he would start to deal with the anger, which had been so latent in him, he didn't even know it was there. Uh, and yet it drove his actions. You know, once I started to explain that, I mean, I describe myself as a sponge in a mirror. The sponge absorbs quite a bit of negativity. And anybody in the caring profession will testify to the fact that once you help other people, you need help yourself. You have to download this negativity. There's a real transference. 
might sound like hippie nonsense, but it isn't. It really happens. Um, you've got to deal with that. But I do take some of that, absorb some of that. And the mirror reflects the truth. And when I tell our potential guests that, they all get a bit frightened. And think, oh, God, he's going to give me a bollocking. So no, no, I'm going to do the opposite. I'm only going to give you praise. And that frightens them even more because they've never had it. And uh, they might have had one tick in the box when they went through training, a pass out day or something of that nature. But when I say, no, you've just done a fantastic thing there, or well done and that kind of thing, they really don't know how to react and they kind of lost a little bit. So, you know, there are an awful lot of people that this has trickled down since Cain slew Abel. But certainly the First and Second World War, the knock on effect with the families that have suffered through the abuse, usually of fathers who are heavy drinkers or violent or whatever, it's still happening today. This is definitely happening today in our society. And that's why we need to bring in some sort of method that helps people actually correct all this stuff. We're a long way off there. I think it's fair to say it's getting worse. And yeah, I, I agree. Absolutely. Mental yeah. health is getting worse. Yeah. And without using the uh, C word, this mm -hmm. current utter fiasco of nonsense is sending so many people to, an, uh, you know, either into mental health issues or or um, worse, an early grave. And this is my next question is, what, why is it that guys like us see what's going on in the world, you know, and yet, I guess what I'm trying to say is, our servicemen out, uh, and women uh, are, are warriors. And if you ask me, there's never been a time in society when need, when that, that quality is needed more. And yet it's never going to be accessed or at least not for the greater good. And I'm not suggesting revolution or, or whatever, but, but I, I, I really think things are going to get much darker than they are now. And, and I think they're pretty bad now, really. Um, if you've anyone that's read, you know, Books like books like this one will know what I'm on about. Literally, if on a on a progression scale from from zero to a hundred percent, we 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 are literally about here. You know, we we're on seventy percent of mind control, totalitarian, you know, re regime. Uh, the the language people are coming out with, like social distancing, is it it it's what in it's what in the, George Orwell described as new new speak, you know, this mm. kind of I, yeah. I, I, I don't know really what I'm trying to say, mate, but I want to say something because yeah. there'll be service personnel listening now and, yes. and, and our civilian brothers and sisters, of course, yeah. but who are starting to work out this, I'm just gonna call it fucking bullshit, right? <laughs> You know that that many of us picked up on after the events in New York twenty years ago when we went, huh? That ain't right. You know, mm -hmm. uh, and I want to encourage people that yes, you are on the right. You're thinking. You're not mad. You're starting to see the picture that we are all subjected to, but only a only a minority of us have the vision to see. Um, Again, I've probably said enough, Andy, but what what what's what's your view? Because we can't just keep rampaging around the world, sending our, our, our brave men and women to, like you say, go and massacre women and children 
to make Donald Rumsfeld and George Bush and Tony Blair and all the other sociopaths, although I get told off calling them sociopaths, I'm supposed to call them Satanists, right? <laughs> but, you know, we're, we're putting our, we're, our boys and girls are coming back with their legs blown off to make these idiots rich and people still don't get it. But well, that's an interesting question is, you know, do people get it or don't people get it? Um, there's no way of being able to sort of quantify that because, you know, there's an old saying, there are lies, then damned lies, and then statistics. And that's the situation we're in today. We cannot trust any statistics from any government, unfortunately. We've seen it with our own eyes over the last six months, how it's all been fudged and twisted and warped and everything else. So unfortunately, um, I've always been fighting one of those battles with paranoia. Uh, but I, the bubble burst for me, or if you like, the fuel to develop the paranoia, um, started in Ireland when I saw incidents over there that really opened my eyes to what was really being done. That was an extremely dirty war. It had to be fought in an extremely dirty way. You couldn't fight that war in conventional ways like we did in the Falklands. In the Falklands, it was very simple. They're over there. They're wearing uniform. It's different to ours. We can kill them or they can kill us. It's, very, it's, it's, it's the way war should be in our minds for those of us that think there should be any war at all. Um, we've moved so far from that now. 9-11, of course, was the, the watershed, in my opinion, for me personally, where I saw, okay, this bubble that I saw purely as a British situation is now a global thing. Um, and everything that's happened subsequent to that is, is related. And of course, you know, just to give you a, a kind of a simple analogy, when I left the world in 96 and sailed out of Plymouth uh, with just a VHF radio, which gives you a range of about 60 miles, there was a certain Britain. When I came back into it nearly two decades later, there was a very, very different Britain. And you can only say that when you've been out of it and literally seen the changes. For people who live in any society, you don't notice them. They just creep up on you. Uh, and that, that was an indication to me, you know, of how far we'd moved away from what I thought was, you know, a reasonably okay society, but I personally was damaged. And so therefore I couldn't see any of the good in it. Now I sort of cleanse myself a little bit. I could see more clearly. And, and I saw this distinct trend in completely the wrong direction. We are sliding towards the abyss. But I don't call it the abyss because I think, you know, the human race is more resilient than that. If we do fall off the edge of the cliff, well, the planet will keep rolling and the elephants will carry on, you know. So <laughs> nothing to worry on that score. It's like the global warming panic and all the rest of it. We seem to have forgotten there have been two ice ages. And this very sea where I'm living now, the Mediterranean, has dried out twice in its history. So, you know, big changes are nothing new, um, but it's great for business. And this is what's happened. And I think it's just the war machine. That's all it is. It's just if you've got all these tanks and guns and planes and goodness knows what we've all got, we have to have something to fight, mate. We just can't just sit in our barracks and say, aren't they pretty missiles? You know, we don't yeah, want to get into a rant here, but I think that's what's changed fundamentally. We need There's a moral start, imperative that's no longer what it was. We need to and, start dragging these, excuse my language, but fuckers out by the bloody shirt tails or collars the ones that are making the money off these bombs and you know it and you don't have to be einstein to work out which corporations <laughs> these are and, and who runs them um but the point just to pick up on a point you made there about you sailed away and and you came back and you see the changes well part of my uh my punishment is being old <laughs> 
Now that's an interesting observation. You know, you age has been a punishment, do you? Well, I, I'm I'm saying it tongue in cheek. What I mean is, is I remember when you went out in the street and you said good morning to people, and I'm not being, you know, I'm not I haven't got my rose tinted glasses on here or anything. Mm. What you see now when you go in the street is scared, damaged people that have been so screwed over by this uh, what i call the agenda run by the sociopaths which is to destroy every individual to destroy culture to destroy community to get everyone living like we are now on this lockdown in our little rabbit hutches with just one method of communication no no interaction no love no no human um no human humanness right and I was, you know, we were on holiday the other day and I was running along the seafront and we, we holidayed in, in, in Devon. And every runner the other way is like, you know, it used to be you went out for a run, you, you said hi to everyone running the other way. It was kind of, that was your, that was your kind of, you know, I don't know, your, your shoe in, so to speak, is you're both runners, so you can say hi. And everyone did it, right? Same as bikers was, bikers will always like wave, wave to one another. Now, everyone's head down in their own world of insecurity and, and, and fear in that scenario probably isn't. But, you know, we've just lost the ability to be bloody human. And what I'm saying is, Andy, is I'm old enough to see that. Mm. And I wish these young people, I just so much wish I could put what's in my head into there so they could just have a little, a brief overview of what's what's really going on. Um, well, I, I don't think um, age is particularly relevant here because I think all age, all age groups have everything. We've got the sheep, we've got the wolves, we've got the sheepdogs, we've got the clever, we've got the dumb. We've got those that will follow slavishly. We'll go those that will think independently. So uh, age is misleading. Um, there are plenty of young people who've got the same views and very elderly people as well. The bottom line is this, in my opinion, um, we have a DNA imprint in us and the need to be social is as powerful as the need to breathe or to eat and sleep and drink and all those things, right? You don't need to be taught this stuff. This is natural. We are just going through a phase. That's all it is. How long this phase lasts? Well, nobody can predict that. But I think the growing awareness of everything you've just alluded to, the dark state, the real agendas going on in this world at the moment, um, that can only take time to absorb and, and filter down to the critical mass. Now, what is a critical mass? Is it 51%? Is it 60 I don't know. Nobody knows. But they, there are plenty of indications. The best one I can remind you of is uh, the Berlin Wall coming down in 1989. I mean, that was just unbelievable. I was in Berlin three weeks before that happened, and there was absolutely no indication whatsoever what was happening. I was there in uniform. Three weeks later, I couldn't believe it, watching on television, people hacking down the very wall I've been stood next to. The Cold War suddenly ended overnight. Now, that's a critical mass thing, and the same thing can happen here. Eventually, across the world, thanks to this incredible invention, we will all get to that critical mass, and people will say, right, we've had enough of this crap, you know. I'm going back to where I am. Actually, I see a lot of evidence here right now. There are people around wandering around without masks on. They're supposed to wear them, but the police can't arrest everybody. So, you know, there's a limit to how far they can push this. And maybe there is an agenda, and maybe those of us that think in a slightly 
quasi-paranoid way will have in, in, you worked out the agendas and how far this is going. And Orwell is a classic example. But I'm also a very positive, optimistic thinker. And, and I always look for the positive in things because without that, I wouldn't be here. If you don't deal with the negatives, you will be destroyed by them. You have got to come out of this saying, this is, this is a good result. This is a good example of something. Or I've learned something valuable. And, and I think as a world, we are learning something for the very first time because of this international communication skill. We're all learning about something here, which is fundamental about how governments work, about how the world's been run, about capitalism. You know, it's all up for grabs, isn't it? We have no answers, but we are being forced to think about things. And maybe one of the great things that comes out of this is we get more involved with our own politics. Maybe we need to start thinking more seriously about the people we put up there in charge, you know, and, and be more demanding, demand results, not just simply talk about it. Mm. But you're right, we're not talking revolution or anything stupid like that, we don't need that. We just need that critical mass and it's education and education is the key to everything. If we can sort the education out, mate, we sort out the world. Simple as that. There'll be no child abuse. Yeah. My point about service personnel is like you are warriors, but at the minute, I'm sorry to say it, all I see is sheep <laughs> and, and we don't need sheep. We don't need more sheep. We need people to start to, you know, to, to start broadening their minds and, 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 and listening to the people that know, instead of just shutting people down because it doesn't fit your, you know, your Coronation Street and BBC News narrative. It's, um, yeah, can't reset any, any, it's that thing though, Andy, isn't it? You, how do you, how do you wake up? I, I don't know if you can wake someone else up. You probably could if they were a really good friend and, and they, you had mutual love and respect for one another and you could sit down and have a rational conversation. But the one thing that this sociopathic agenda has instilled in people, and it's done it massively, is it makes everybody live out their ego. You know, all these selfie stuff and flashy cars and you know, it makes everybody live out their ego. And when you live out your ego, you're reactionary. It's all about protecting you and your sense of being and your sense of worth. How dare anybody have a different opinion with me? Whereas I think for what you must have come through in your life, and I know what I've come through, you have to get rid of that one. <laughs> you know, you have to start seeing the world for what it is, not, not, not the way that your defences automatically kind of try to de defend you from? Well, I think where age is relevant, uh, and you were right to bring this up in this context, um, the youth don't have that capability of making that comparison. They've obviously been born in the age of political correctness, which in my opinion is more threatening than any nuclear holocaust or any previous conflict this world's ever seen. It is a cancer within all of our societies that has undermined our ability. Um, you know, if I transgress the rules when I was at boarding school, you got caned. Simple as that. There was no messing around. There was no apologies. There was no need to sort of make a big deal of it. You know, you're going to get punished, son. End of story. I remember running down the road one day as a boy at home, privileged part of the country, you know, in, in West Midlands, out, out near Shropshire, screaming the top of my head off on a Sunday morning because I was going to see a friend of mine. Next thing I know, I'm lying on my back seeing stars and there's this enormous copper standing over me, waving his finger going, keep quiet, son. People like to have a lion on Sunday morning. I had no idea where he came from. He just clouted me around the ear like that and I was sent flying. 
that was a day when we had you know society that was was disciplined and had respect that's totally gone we've seen so many examples of that now it's just ludicrous but you know we have to get to that point of realization that uh cause and effect if you don't comply with society's simple rules then we have to have more rules to make you comply and it just gets worse and worse and worse and we've moved so far away from that that uh, it's now impossible to come back easily it's got to be a critical mass thing so in other words things have to get worse before they get better and i'm quite expecting that to be honest yeah um but you know my world is simple i, I was brought up a certain age i didn't sign up to political correctness i don't know who invented this damn thing i'd love to meet that person um but it's, it's not a part of my life i speak my mind i say what i feel I also try to be canny. And of course, nowadays, which is why I'm not getting too deep into this debate, I also have to remember I'm representing a charity that has some very ethical people in it who do not like to sort of advertise too many things. So we've got to be careful about finding the right line here. But bottom line is, I'm in agreement broadly with what you're saying, and a lot of people are. And uh, we just need to sort of make more people aware of the reality. You know, get your head out of that shopping bag and start seeing what's really going on around you. Exactly right. Andy, for that reason alone, I thank you from the not just the bottom of my heart but from my family's heart for being so open-minded and as i say a, a true definition of what a warrior actually actually is um I'll, with respect to your story god i'm i don't usually make it through such things with dry eyes mate to be honest especially when we're talking about about the royal marines and uh our favorite subject yeah well you know your commitment in the Falklands doesn't get lost on people like me mate you know it really doesn't and for what you've come through personally I just um I, I don't know if congratulate you is the right word but <laughs> thank you for coming through it's such a well-rounded and 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 decent human being um can we chat can we chat again at some point delighted to yeah absolutely we have a little chat before and about what it is we're talking about and then I can get my brain into gear. Yeah, no problems at all, Chris. I'm sorry about the interference again. I just heard my wife switched on the aircon downstairs and the machine's right outside this window. So uh, ah, that's what's I, causing this, I'm think afraid. That's Peter's insignificance um, compared to our, our chat, mate. Um, that just leaves me to thank our friends listening and watching. Massive love to you all, massive respect. Thank you for supporting the channel. Um, if you could support us on Patreon, uh, it's only £2 a month and loads of free gizits there uh, would be very welcome. And if you can like and subscribe, if you did like, you know, maybe you didn't. <laughs> but thank you. Um, Andy, stay on the line. Goodbye, everybody. Friends, thank you for listening to the Bought the T-Shirt podcast. Please like, subscribe and share. And don't forget to follow me on social media. Username Chris Thrall. Instagram Chris Thrall. Thank you.